get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. I think the Reds are a juggernaut, and this is a big fit for them. Okay. I love what the Reds are doing. I'm, I'm with you. I, I, I think I wouldn't this call club them, is dangerous. I don't know if I call them juggernauts, but I think they're better than they were last year. And given that nobody has really kind of grabbed any headlines in that division yet outside the Cubs poaching Craig Council. So you've got this flexibility without being weighed down with a big contract again. Right. And I think this is their window. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Some big news in the world of Major League Baseball yesterday. I don't know where else we would start today, Alex. The Reds have officially announced the signing of Frankie Montas. Nope. And Try it I again. Montas? Montas. Okay. Him. That, Nailed that name. It. That is the individual that the Reds have officially announced as their newest Addition to the staff. No, we're not talking Dylan Cease, not Logan Gilbert, not Tyler Glass. Now, none of those fools are going to Cincinnati. It is Frankie leading the front end of that rotation. A man that barely can stay healthy has a shoulder that is attached by toothpicks and bubble gum. And it's going to work out for the Reds. There's no way this one goes poorly. Hashtag juggernaut. According to MLB Network, specifically Harold Reynolds, that's a juggernaut over there in Cincinnati. Alex, I guess my question to you is this, in all seriousness. Is the rest of the division now chasing the Reds? Are they the team to beat? Because I'm i looking around this division, man, and I, I'm not totally sure who the team to beat, so to speak, is right now. Would you put them in that category? I'd put the Red Birds as the team to beat. Huh? Sure. That uh, hesitation on, was that hesitation on purpose? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I, honestly, fair. no. I... If you want to make the argument that they're in the front and everybody in the NL Central is chasing them, fine. If you want to make the argument that the Cardinals are in front and everybody's chasing them, also fine. Because I think they're the exact same team. I think the Brewers, the Cubs, the Pirates are all worse than those two teams. And those are the two teams, as Harold Reynolds likes to call them, are the juggernauts of the NL Central. I don't even know if we could use the phrase juggernauts of the NL Central. I had to look up the definition of juggernaut because I thought maybe I... Didn't know what it meant. No, I think you're spot on. No, I don't think Harold Reynolds knew what it meant because that's not a damn juggernaut in Cincinnati. I don't think there's a team really to beat in the NL Central. Even looking at 
Central standards, and those are very much diminished. I, it, it feels a lot like the AL Central from last year, I, where it is. You look at it and you go, yeah, is there really a good team in there? Like, who's chasing who? N- nobody really knows. That's the way I feel about the NL Central, because had the Reds gotten better, sure, but it's just like the Cardinals, where it's like, yeah, if you did, like, anything, you got better from last year's squad. Like, they haven't added a difference maker into the rotation. They added Nick Martinez and Frankie, who now has a hopefully better shoulder. No, they haven't gotten better. Pagan's like a fly ball pitcher in a small ballpark, by the way. I I don't think they're a juggernaut. I, I think they've gotten better, but they're definitely have not they? the team to chase. No. I, I think they have because they've added at least in like stability. Way? And no, they've got no. younger players that but are coming I, up. They haven't gotten better in a meaningful way, but I don't think the Cardinals have necessarily gotten better in that much sure. of a meaningful way either. I, I don't think there's a team to like highlight and say, this is the team to beat in the NL Central right now. I think this division is terrible right now. It sucks. Let's just be like, honest. The no, Chicago Cubs have added one significant thing since the end of the last season, and it's the manager. And I didn't think their manager was the problem this year. Now, I like what they did there. I thought it was a really smart move. And I've heard a lot of people, Alex, say something to the effect of, well, why do you make that move if you're not then going to go invest? Because it's cheap, guys. They made the move to invest in their manager and pay it an extra, what, five million bucks? Think about what that is in Major League Baseball terms. Like, we're talking about basically adding a utility infielder. That's what they spent to upgrade at the managerial position. Now, was he worth that money? Time will tell. But I don't think that was just a play for 2024. I think that's a long-term investment in Craig Council. I think the Cubs eventually will be pretty damn good. I just don't think this is the year. Right now, they're still missing Marcus Stroman in their rotation and have done nothing to replace him. They're still missing a Cody Bellinger-sized hole in that lineup. And guys, if not for Cody Bellinger, that offense was not particularly good this past year. They got MVP caliber performances out of Cody Bellinger for like three months. He fell off. The offense fell off. Guess what? They missed the playoffs as a result. And right now, he ain't on the team. And if they do bring him back, it's not going to be Cody Bellinger that was making a one-year, what, $15, $18 million deal. It's going to be Cody Bellinger making a $200 million contract with that team now. So I don't think the Cubs are the team to beat. I certainly do not think the Milwaukee Brewers are the team to beat, where one of their big-time starters is out for the season. The other one is gone. The other one, I have no idea if he's going to be there past July 1st, much less July 31st. So we are looking basically at the Reds or the Cardinals. I think the Cardinals maybe are slightly improved from the team that we thought they were going to be a year ago. Not the team they actually were, but the team at this point in the 2023 calendar year that we thought they were going to be. I guess the same is true of the Reds. I mean, this was a team that about midway through last season, we all looked at with the youth and we're like, damn, man, they are super fun. But when you're as young as they are, there's growing pains that are natural to take place. And I don't think they're ready to just go out there and become a juggernaut a year later. They've got serious questions in the rotation, despite what they've added. And their lineup is so incredibly young. I I expect some significant slumps, just like we saw from them a year ago. This division's terrible, man. It's horrible. It's going to be fun to talk about which central is going to be the worst because on the other side of the American League, it's also trash. You got the Minnesota Twins and then everybody else who is going to be jockeying for second place. And the Twins are actively trying to sell off yeah. pieces in yeah. their division. I, it, it, it's baffling. I, I do think that the Cardinals and Reds are kind of similar when you look at the rosters, but I, I, think, I think the de- the difference for the Cardinals, and I think I heard you mention this 
while I was off talking about the Pistons and their long losing streak at the time is <laughs> they just didn't. They, the Reds don't have that veteran presence anymore to teach them how to win with their lineup guys. And at least when I look at the Cardinals, you still got Goldie, you got Arnado. Now you can question their clutchness in the postseason, <laughs> but those guys know what it takes to win in the regular season and get through the grind of 162 games. Because I think offensively, you could you could look at the Reds lineup, you could look at the Cardinals and kind of debate which one you think is better. You can look at the pitching staff and go, Hunter Green's a one, Sonny Gray. If he's not a one, he's a one B. And it's very much arguable. And then you look at what the rest of those rotations are and you go, ew. And then you look at the bullpens and you go, all right, there's some guys I like in that pin, but they're nothing that's great. It's not a dominant pin like the Braves have. They're very similar on paper. And I think they're both like 85 win teams right now, 85, 87 win type teams. But where I think the Cardinals get that edge is that veteran experience that they have that the Reds just don't have in that lineup right now. And just to be honest, I like Jordan Walker better than I like any of the young players on the Reds. And this is not a shot against Elliot De La Cruz or any of those guys. I I like their young talent. They have a lot of it. But Jordan Walker is potentially a special player. The Reds' young players are all very good. And we got out a little bit over our skis with the L.A. De La Cruz uh, love last year. L.A. De La Cruz is a super exciting player. And I'm not sure I can remember a player that profiled like him in recent years. Maybe the closest thing would be like, he's essentially Ronald Acuna Jr. If Ronald Acuna Jr. was like 60% as good as he actually is, that's probably the, the comparison that you could say for Ellie. But he plays in the middle infield. So there's that part of it as well. So he's an exciting young player, but his actual production last year did not match the hype of what he was supposed to be and what he was very early on in his career with the Reds. Meanwhile, Jordan Walker, the production matched the hype, man. He was seriously questionable in the outfield, but by the end of the season, I even think that improved in a significant way. So I think the Cardinals have the best of the young players that are available. They have like the only two veterans that are in this group, this mix. I think the Reds have the best starter of the two teams. Agreed. They might have the best reliever of the two teams. But other than that, man, like it's it's debatable going one way or the other. And I think you can make a pretty strong argument that right now the Cardinals have the better overall roster than the Reds do. And they play at a ballpark that I just trust them more. Is some of it too the <laughs> yeah. way that Cincinnati ended the season compared to the Cardinals? Absolutely. Because I think that's part of it why a lot of people are looking at Cincinnati calling them the quote-unquote juggernaut. It's because down the stretch, they were actually pushing for a playoff spot for the longest time, whereas the Cardinals kind of fell to the wayside going into that offseason. I I think you're right, but what's weird about that is like we talk about like they were pushing for the playoffs. They collapsed in the second half. And why? Because there was front office mail practice done where they didn't add starting pitching. Like They should almost be crushed and not even be talked about as... We know all about that. True. They should not be talked about as a juggernaut, a huge, powerful, and overwhelming force or institution. That's right. I looked it up just to confirm. Definition uh, in front of them. They 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 can't <laughs> be a juggernaut when they collapse in the second half and they're losing. And again, Joey Votto is not the Joey Votto of old, but, but he was a veteran presence that still could play a little bit but, on that. But team. let me play devil's advocate here. It's a young group that you kind of expect to collapse down the stretch because they're not used but to it. They've done nothing to change that mix. And Brian Price, it's not like this was the first time I've watched Brian Price be at the helm. By the way, to see a team collapse, he's done it multiple times. Well, he's not their manager any longer. Um, or sorry, not Brian Price. I was thinking of uh, say Brian Price is like the mid 2000s. Sorry, I'm thinking of David, David Bell. Bell. That's who I'm thinking of. Yeah, sorry, like, David Bell. Second. Our guy Brian Price comes yeah. on regularly. Brian, I love you, show. man. I'm sorry. Rubbing Brian Price's fit name through the dirt. He's a pitching coach again somewhere. Somebody on the text line Bring said, guys, and this is the segment that is sponsored by the Cardinals. 
So if you think this is cardinal worship, I don't know what you're listening to right now. We're telling you that the Cardinals are in a division that might be won by a team that wins 85 games next year. Like, that's what this segment is really about. It's not about the Cardinals. It's not about the Cubs. not about the Reds. It's about all of them. And the nonsense that is taking place within this division right now. Somebody on the text line also mentioned, I think this was from the 618. Guys, if the National League put all of the teams into a blender and instead of it just being the divisions, you had to actually be ah. one of the top six or seven teams in the NL to Old make the postseason. NHL standings. Nobody <laughs> would make it out of this division. Yeah. And I think that's probably true. I don't think this division is going to have somebody that's in the top five of the National League next year, at least as currently projected. And that's why the Cardinals can get away with what they're doing right now. That doesn't mean it's right. I don't like it. I think they need to go out there and add multiple pieces to this bullpen. I think they need to add somebody that can project to either be a one or a two with Sonny Gray in the rotation. But when you look around the division and you see, okay, so the Reds are bringing in Frankie Montas, Nick Martinez, Emilio Pagan, and Candelario, and that's their big time additions to the team okay well what are our big time additions to the team i think they're similar to what the reds have done with sunny gray lance lynn kyle gibson fernandez robertson and o'brien coming in the bullpen likely one or two more additions to that bullpen based on what Derek gould reported yesterday i I think they're pretty similar from where they were at the end of last year to where they are today i don't think that the teams are all that dissimilar the cubs have taken a step back the brewers have taken a step back the pirates are still the pirates Everybody in this division, throw them into a hat, pick somebody's name out that's not the Pirates, you probably got the winner. I I don't have anybody as the clear-cut favorite in the division. Alex, I did want to play a little game with you, though. Ooh. Because Frankie Montas just signed a one-year contract worth $15 million. That is one of the many starting pitchers that are now off the market in the mid to lower tier that the Cardinals could have explored for their back end of the rotation. Now, instead, they decided to go with Lance Lynn and Kyle Gibson, right? So let's play a game called This or That. Uh, T-Bone, can you hit my open for me? You can get with this or you can get with that. You can get with this or you can get with that. You can get with this or you can get with that. This doesn't help because I still have Chris Cross's jump in my head. Chris Cross gonna. All right. Would you rather have the Cardinals' two contracts that they signed at the back end of the rotation with Lance Lynn and Kyle Gibson or. Lucas Giolito on a two-year deal worth $38.5 million, Alex. Which one would you rather have, this that the Cardinals got or that with Lucas Giolito? Mm, I think I'd rather have Lynn and Gibson. Same. Hmm. I don't. I don't know if I trust Lucas Giolito. Yeah. Oh wow. I, oh, I was BK, the biggest. BK's like, oh, this played right into my hand. No, oh. I'm just surprised. You'd rather have Kyle Gibson than Lucas Giolito. Yeah. Or yeah. Lance Lynn than Lucas Giolito. Yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah. I watching him in the second half. Yeah, he was bad. Did you watch I, Lance Lynn? But this was my. This was <laughs> my. This was my reasoning. I said that the Cardinals, you know, the certainty on Lynn's a little questionable. They couldn't take on a project this offseason. That's a project. Lance Lynn's a project. No, he's not. He's the number five in your rotation. I saw that the Zips say only 22 home runs allowed this year. Less than Michaelis. I'm surprised by you guys. I would totally take Lucas Giolito on that contract over one of Gibson or Lynn. You can take your choice which one you'd rather have. But I, if this was going to be the deal for Lucas Giolito, now I don't know if he wanted to play here in St. Louis or not, but two years, 38 million? Mm. Yeah, I would have taken that for the Cardinals. All right, next one up. What the Cardinals got or Michael Waka at two years and $32 million? That. Michael Waka. Same. Yep. I'd take Waka over 
you know, pick my point. Yeah. Like, you can replace yeah. Gibson. Honestly, Rowland. who cares? Sweet, I like that one as well. All right, next one up. What the Cardinals got or Seth Lugo at three years and $45 million. That, that. I take really? Lugo. Yeah. 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 I, really want, I really wanted Seth Lugo. I yeah. thought he made a ton of sense. Plus, for the you have the useful, useful. We're all the same agreement here. All right, what the Cardinals got or Frankie Montas at one year, $15 million. I'll take Leonard Gibson. Yeah, I don't think Montas yeah. is going to make it through the season. Anytime you have a shoulder issue, I'm out. What, yeah. uh, what the Cardinals got, got or <laughs> Luis Severino at one year, $13 million. I'd go that. See, I would have Gibson and Lynn. I, Severino's too much of a question mark. I needed a little bit of certainty yeah. somewhere. Yeah, but I'm only keeping one out of that group of Lynn or Gibson, right? Yeah. I, I'll keep one of them and get the certainty and then give me that upside. Uh, Kinta Maeda, two years, $24 million. What the Cardinals got this or that in Kinta Maeda? Mm. I'd probably go that. I'd Kinta go Maeda. Maeda. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd go Maeda. I think I would too. It, it's close. But I think I would take him over. Lynn. I at least know he's not going to give up the most hits in Major League Baseball at the end of the season. Upside to make up for the fact that he's got so many injury questions. He's up there in age as well. I'd probably go with this. I'd go with what the Cardinals got. All right, next one up. Tyler Malley, my boy. Two years, $22 million. Would you go with this, what the Cardinals got, or that? Tyler Malley, two years, $22 million. That. I'd go Malley. I'm playing chess, not checkers. I'd go that because it would force them to go make another move in the rotation because oh, you can't expect him <laughs> yeah, to no, play <laughs> on opening day. He's not going to be available. Well, so you've got to go out there and get at least one more starter. So I'd go that because of what it forces them to do. That's funny. You think the Cardinals would be forced into doing anything. That's what you think, Brandon. Yeah. But Mo would run it back with Zach Thompson. And I would do Libertor. that too. Did you see the progress of Libertor sure this did. past season? All right. So we would basically say that the Cardinals messed up. By jumping the market early. And instead, we would have preferred the... Would you rather have... So essentially, we're saying you'd rather have the two uh, starters that the Royals signed as opposed to the two guys that the Cardinals signed for similar money. This segment brought to you by the Cardinals front office. I want to point out, the Royals are making them a one and a two, and we were making them a four and a five. (laughs) No, that's fair. Very true. Uh, They're also better than the Uh, pictures that you brought in as your four and five. Yeah, true. Both of them are significantly better and also not geriatric. You know what? We want guys that wanted to be here. He's Alex Ferrario. You get benefits with your ARP carded buffets. That is Tanner Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kylie. Alex, before we get out of here, you had something that was stuck in your head all morning. Yeah. yeah, yeah I uh, can't believe we've got that. Yeah. Do we, do we have the music for it? Because Simone, can I, you go ahead and play this? Because it's it's a weird day, guys. There's nothing going on in the world of sports. We're just having a, having a good time with you all. Know this is more if you're driving around, if you're sitting in the office, just stand up and join in the fun. Alex has had this stuck in his head all morning long. So now it's time for you to get it stuck in your head as well. He's Alex Ferrario, that's Tanner Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kylie. Congratulations on getting that yeah. Chris Cross song Good stuck in your head for the out. next six years, roughly. For Coming up in about 15 minutes today. or so, is this the year that brings us to the breaking point with the college football playoff and the calendar that exists around it? We'll get into that. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, but coming up next, Scott Perunovich. Is this the guy that the Blues have been looking for all along? We'll talk about it next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. But I'm telling you from a potential standpoint, Scott Prunovich looks so much like Quinn Hughes. It is, it is insane. I mean, Chris Kerber on the call a couple nights ago, we kept calling him Tory Krug on the power play, and I kept hitting him. I'm like, listen, 
It's not Krug, it's Prunovich. But the point was, he looks so much like Krug, the way he moves his hips and the way he gets out of trouble. And you think he's cornered, but then he escapes it and he finds that lane. That's the creativity of him. And I think if he goes in the minors, plays a lot of games, he's going to come up and he's going to be quite a player. I don't think we're going to have a Kale McCarr, but can we have something close to Quinn Hughes? I really think we can with this kid. That was Joey Vitale about a year and a half ago talking about what the future looks like for Scott Perunovic. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 10 minutes or so, we'll talk to or we'll talk about rather the college football calendar and whether or not this is the year that it all comes to a breaking point. We'll get into that here in just a little bit. But Alex, Scott Perunovic, since we had that answer from Joey Vitale, has basically had zero experience at the NHL level where he was ex- for an extended period of time legitimately healthy Mm -hmm. and this is the first opportunity for us to really see that today it sounds like he's got potentially depending on what happens with Tori Krug uh, a chance to play in that second pair with Marco Scandella uh, because of health for Justin Falk and then um, Tori Krug is sick today so we could see a little bit more ice time from Scott Perunovic in tomorrow's game as well which is something I've been hoping for Because, Alex, when you look at some of the super nerdy numbers, I'm talking like game score numbers. Give them to me. Even the most nerdy of nerdy hockey fans, I don't know that you're looking at this stuff. But they love Scott Perunovich, man. In every game that he has played recently, he is like either at the top or near the top of the list of the guys that made the biggest impact on the ice, especially from an offensive perspective. You go over to the nerdy numbers on natural stat trick where they check the Corsi ratings and the shots for percentage and the expected goals and all of that stuff. I'm not going to bore you with the actual numbers, but let's just put it this way. He's number one on the blues and basically every statistical category at five on five among defensemen with what he does when he's on the ice. The blues are better offensively when Perunovic is on the ice than when he's off of it by a pretty significant margin. Are we seeing the guy that the blues told us that he was going to become or what are, what has been your evaluation of him thus far? I mean, I, I think you're seeing the player that Doug Armstrong envisioned when they drafted him and envisioned when they looked down the road of who he was going to be with the team. I mean, Doug Armstrong went the puck moving offensive minded defenseman, the smaller stature, but guys that can create more offense when he signed Tory Krug traded for Justin Falk. And when you draft and develop a Scott Perunovich, he's been injured. That's been the hardest part with this, but let's not forget two years ago when we were all talking about the next big thing that was Scott Perunovich when he performed in the postseason. Then the injuries took place. This year he's doing the exact same thing. He's creating offense. He's pinching in early. He's keeping plays alive and I don't think he's been bad defensively. I think defensively he's been what you would expect. He's tough in front of the net and he can defend with his stick. He's not a big guy. The Quinn Hughes thing is so hard because Quinn Hughes right now is a Norris Trophy candidate, and a lot of people are talking about him as in the same conversation as Kale McCarr. But if you look at the types of players, they're the same guy. They both had success in college. Scott Pernovich slightly did better winning a Hobie Baker Award. The difference is Quinn Hughes, when he was drafted, was put in a position to play 20 minutes a night. He was drafted, and as soon as he tasted the NHL, he was a number one defenseman. Scott Perunovich has been injured, but he's also been used as a third-pair defenseman. He's never really given the opportunity to be in the top pair and eat 18, 19, 20 minutes a night. Slow progress because you haven't played a lot of NHL games, but if the offense is there, if you're just not a liability defensively, 
I'm looking at this saying Scott Perunovic has proven he can stay healthy now on this stretch of games and he's played some heavy teams. I don't understand what the problem is of looking at a Scott Perunovic and saying, you know what? Let's put him in a bigger role and maybe the Krug and Falk situations provide that. But let's put him in a role where he's eating 18 minutes a night and see what he looks like out there. Because if he makes mistakes, cool, then you could build off of that. I just don't think we need to baby Scott Perunovich anymore. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of with you because I, I think he's been fine. I, I think he's been what you kind of expected him to be for a guy that's been injured for as much as he has been. Like if this was his first full season and you hadn't had injuries before and his draft status, knowing his pedigree, you would probably expect more from him, even though he is playing in that bottom pairing. But because he's dealt with injuries and he's now just starting to get his feet wet at the NHL level at 25, then, yeah, this is what I've been expecting. I think you're right defensively. I don't think he's been awful. I don't think there's been – there's maybe been a couple noticed it to where it's bad, but it's not been outrageous. I, I think at some point, and I think this is where the Blues are having that, though they are in a retool or rebuild or whatever it is, but they're still trying to remain competitive for the playoffs – they're kind of in the tough spot of we can't if because we want to be a playoff team we can't put him in the top four and have him out there making mistakes because we do personally want to make the playoffs if they didn't care about the playoffs they would he'd be in the top four right now but because they want to get there I don't think they're playing him in the top four because they think the other four guys are better but I think you're right I, I think at some point once we get probably past the trade deadline they're going to have to start bumping up the usage for him and start seeing him more in that 18 minutes a night range. So, somebody texted in and said, I'd like to see his plus minus get better before he gets that opportunity. Why? What are we trying to accomplish by babying Scott Perunovich saying, well, he's not good defensively and I don't want to play him in that position. Also, and I know people hate this, but ex- if you look at expected goals, he's actually the best on the team. Yeah. I, I mean, guys, Quinn Hughes was a minus 34 in his first two full seasons as an NHL defenseman. You think Vancouver's people were like, ah, keep him off the top four. No, because you know what the expected outlook is for this kid, and he's going to create offense. Scott Perunovich, I, I will say, like, there is a little bit of hesitancy from him wanting to shoot, and there's more, like, delegating. Sure. But I think you can get rid of that by eliminating the idea that, well, if you don't perform well, we're going to take you out of the lineup. Look at a Scott Perunovich and say, you're in the lineup now. You're 25 years old. You're an unrestricted free agent after this season. We can't go through this year, you playing 60 games as a third-pair defenseman and sit here and say, yeah, you know what? We got an idea of what this kid is. Put him on a line with Colton Pareko. If you don't like that idea, then keep him with Marco Scandella, but put him in the top four. Let him play a lot more power play time. I'd put this kid on the number one power play unit instead of Tory Krug. Hell, everything else isn't working right now. Why not give this kid a shot? So in in the last six weeks, um, he, he's been playing an average of, let's see here, about 14 minutes a night over the last six weeks. This is dating back to mid-November now. Um, in that stretch where he's been a consistent player in the Blues lineup, that's why I use this stretch, not like just random fancy numbers or anything. Corsi rating is 55%. For those that aren't familiar with that, it essentially means Blues basically are driving offense more often than the opposition. It's it's a good number. It's the best among the Blues defensemen by a pretty significant margin. If you're looking at shots for just like a basic rudimentary statistic, right? The Blues have outshot their opponents when Scott Perunovich is on the ice 103 to 84 in the last six weeks. That's a really good mark by what the Blues are doing. If you're looking at scoring chances, okay, sure, they're putting a bunch of pucks on net, but what does that mean, BK? It's probably all terrible opportunities. No, not at all. 94 to 82 when it comes to scoring chances in favor of the Blues. The other Blues defensemen that you're looking at on the team, like every single one of them, 
is at or below 50% so far on this season and at or below 50% over the last six weeks as well. He is the one guy that is really driving offense. It's happening at five on five. It's happening on the power play. And so as a result of that, what I would like to see is more opportunities. Even if Tory Krug is playing, I would like to see Scott Perunovich getting some of those big time minutes. In fact, I would just flip Nick Letty and Scott Perunovich. Yep. I would just make the change. I understand that Nick Letty is a guy that has been there, done that. I understand that Nick Letty is somebody that you are paying to be the partner for Colton Pareko. But, but is Nick Letty a part of your future? He's not. Nope. He's not. And I have always wondered what it would look like if you had somebody that can really drive offense in that pairing with Colton Pareko. I think in our heads, Alex, we think of Colton Pareko and we go back to 2019, right? And we say, okay, the guy that you need is 6'5", super long, and a stay-at-home defenseman. Well, what if the game has changed? And what if Colton Pareko specifically has changed? And now he can be the guy that is the stay-at-home defenseman while somebody else is driving the offense for Pareko. That's what I'd like to see, and I think the guy that best suits that role is Scott Peruna. We always talked, or at least I always talked, about finding somebody who can play with Pareko like Jay Bomeister did. Now, I'm not saying Scott Perunovich is Jay Bomeister because the size is the biggest difference. But you know what the similarities are? Scott Perunovich is predictable. When the puck is on his stick, you know what he's going to do. He's going to take it and he's going to skate out of his zone. And what Colton Pareko doesn't need as a defensive pairing is somebody who's unpredictable, somebody who tries to skate off a check, somebody who tries to make the pass that forces it down the middle and it gets picked off. Scott Perunovich, although he's going to make those mistakes, every young player does, I just look at it and say, like, you get predictability with a Colton Pareko. Maybe he's not the biggest guy out there, but what you need is you need two guys who can drive offense. And look, right now, Quinn Hughes is having a Norris Trophy year. He's having it because he's got somebody who's very predictable playing with him in Philip Ronick. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. By the way, Alex, before we get out of here, Matt Kessel is going to be a significant part of this lineup. I, I found it really interesting that he was playing second pair minutes over Tyler Tucker, despite the fact that Tucker was here, Kessel was down in the AHL. They clearly value Kessel at this point as more of a more likely part of the top four defensively than Tyler Tucker. What are you expecting out of him? Is this a guy that we should expect to be a part of the future? Is he like a seventh defenseman? What What do you see as the future for Matt Kessel? I mean, I think Matt Kessel can be a third pair defenseman. Uh, I was texting with uh, Ryan Smith, who does play by play for the Springfield Thunderbirds. And he said, Matt Kessel is a guy who uses his size to his advantage. He's six foot three, 205 pounds. We always talk about needing bigger defensemen out there. And Ryan told me that he's at his best when he doesn't try and get away from his game, meaning he stays in the zone. He doesn't try and chip in with this. So if Matt Kessel is going to play to his advantage size and space and be a bit, be able to take guys off of the puck, I think he could be a perfectly acceptable third pair defenseman that you can use in any situation. Is he going to play nasty? No, I don't think so. But the way that Joel Edmondson played with the blues to where he was tough in front of the net, he used his size to his advantage. I think you could see a little of that from Matt Kessel. It's just a matter of getting him more reps. And frankly, I'm glad they're doing that with him because I think we've already kind of seen what Tyler Tucker is at his best. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. If you guys get any questions in, we'll get to questions and answers coming up at 1145. But coming up next, is this the year where we finally get to the breaking point with the college football playoff and the calendar that surrounds it? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. I'm Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Kirby Smart was not happy following the Georgia win against Florida oh, State. What happened, Kirby? There were too many opt outs. Uh, oh, he said, quote, this needs to be fixed. People need to see what happened tonight and they need to fix it. It needs to be fixed. It's very unfortunate that Florida State had a good football team and a good football program. And they're in the position that they're in right now. Georgia beat Florida State 63 to three. That was a non-competitive football game, Alex. And it never should have been expected to be a competitive football game. Not because Florida State was without Jordan Travis. Everybody knew that that was going to be the case because Florida State was without third of their scholarship players, man. This calendar that currently exists in college football is untenable. It cannot exist in future seasons. And yet, because it's college football, because it's the NCAA, I have no belief that it will actually get fixed by this time next year. Alex, do you think this was a breaking point for the sport? Do you think that we will see this fixed next year or will they have to see it fail with the college football playoff expanded before they decide to do anything. I'd like to believe that it's going to be fixed because it just seems like there was very little hype around all of the bowl games going into it this past week. And I mean, I told you last week on Friday that I found myself multiple times going, oh, hey, this game's on. Like, that doesn't happen. There used to be so much hype around it, and it's because of all of these opt-outs. And then you get this Georgia game that it's not even an actual football game. The dude is going on Instagram live in the middle of the game because it was such a blowout. I'd like to believe that the NCAA looks at this and says, yeah, we need to fix this. But they won't because it's the NCAA. You know what they're going to say? Well, sure, that was bad, but we're going to 12 teams next year for the playoffs, which means there's going to be a lot more hype, which means there's going to be more people that aren't opting out. So we're not going to worry about it. NCAA always likes to kick the can down the road and say, we'll get this done next time around or next time if it's a problem. Uh, So, no, I don't think it's going to happen. I think next year they'll act as if more hype was because of the playoffs, and then they'll sit there and they'll say, we'll just keep figuring it out as we go. Yeah, I I kind of agree with Alex. This should be the point where they look at this and go, okay, yeah, we do need to change this. We need to do something with the transfer portal, bump back the date, whatever you need to do to get it figured out. But I don't think they're going to. I I think what you said, they're going to have to see it fail in the college football playoff. Why? Because that's where the serious dollar bill is. And that that's when it would become a, oh, wait a minute, we can't be having, you know, I don't think 30 would happen, but we can't have three of the best players opt out of a college football playoff game. That that can't happen because that that is huge for us, and those guys are going to go into the portal because they have to. Otherwise, they may be stuck at a school where they lose their job next year. So 
I, I think they're probably going to wait to see, and they will probably, and I think this will be the wrong kind of thinking, but they're probably going to look at that and go, that was just a major one-off. That that won't happen again, That what happened to Florida State. That's a one-off. We're not going to address a one-off. I, I think it has to fail in the playoff before they make serious adjustments. The thing is, it's not going to fail in the playoff because the players that are playing for those teams, they all participate. Like right. We're seeing a lot of kids now decide to opt out, or not opt out, decide to transfer from Alabama. Right. We're going to see a lot of kids over the next couple of weeks decide to transfer from the teams that were participating in the college football playoff. Now, next year, will you see some of those teams that are like 8 to 12? Will you see some of those players decide to transfer that were maybe special teamers, third stringers, quarterback, something like that? You could see that. That's possible. And that could impact those games. But I don't know that that's something that's going to make significant changes. It really is these secondary bowl games like the Cotton Bowl and the Fiesta, like those types of games. Those are the ones that are being impacted in a significant way. The thing is, man, the TV numbers are still unbelievable. I don't know if you guys saw how many people watched that Georgia versus Florida State game. It was t- like 10 million people that tuned in for that on average. I couldn't believe it. I don't know why anybody would have spent their time watching that game because it was a joke. There was no reason to watch when we all knew what was taking place. And after the first half, man, what were we watching for? You don't you know had, any of the kids that were participating in the, the game under, at that point. Cared. The under? Yeah, what was it at? I mean, maybe they, live bet. The they under. scored 63 yeah. points yeah. on their own. That's so what you're watching for. That's what you wanted in that game. That's, that's you, the live, over. you live bet the under. You stick around for the yeah, second half. I wish half. the kid on Instagram live would have brought his entire team. <laughs> so the under would have freaking hit <laughs> the, the, the way that you make this work. I, I think it's very simple, but I just don't have any belief that college football will actually get this done. You play the conference championship as you did this year, the week, the first week in December. That's December 1st this year. The dates could change around a bit, but that's roughly when you play it. The next week you play round one. That's the round of 12, right? So you'll have uh, the teams 5 to 12. They will be participating at their home sites in the first round of the playoff. And then the next week you do round two. Those are the uh, one through eight, essentially, that remain in the playoff. The next week, we're now up to December 22nd. You have the semifinals. So, yes, you have played... For some teams, four consecutive weeks. That sucks. That's unfair to the kids. But because of the way the college football is, that's the only way you can really get this thing done. And then about 10 days later, you play the college football playoff final on January 1st. And later that night at midnight, that is when the transfer portal opens. And for the next two weeks, we essentially have college football's version of free agency. You don't open it before because then the floodgates open the way that we have seen so far this year in the during the bowl games. Put the emphasis back onto the bowl games, not because they matter a lot, but because they deserve the spotlight, right? To celebrate these individual teams. You don't want to break these teams up before you get there. And then when you get to January 1st, you once again open up a new round of college football news with the portal entries and the portal transfers, which essentially becomes for them what free agency is for so many other sports. That's the way you make it work. And I know there's some that say, yeah, but how do you work with the calendars for the individual schools? A lot of them, it's about two weeks into January that you get to before you see the the deadline to enroll in classes. So that's the way you make it work. We already have right now like two weeks where kids are really going on these visits. You you just consolidate that to the beginning of January. It sucks. It's not it's not ideal, but that's probably the only way that they're going to be able to make this thing work. I just on a scale of one to ten, my belief in the NCAA and making something like that actually happen. Yeah, it's like a two. I, I think we are going to have to see at least a year of this with the college football playoff before anything is actually changed. Despite everybody seemingly being on the same 
same pla- place where it needs to, it needs to change. I think there needs all, to be something. I think there. NCAA is always in denial too, to where they'll be like, yeah. no, it's not as bad as you think it is. And then when they get the playoffs, there will be a, a good amount of budget and views on there, and they'll be like, oh, look, see, there's no problems here. We're fine. Nobody really cares about everything else. We'll just focus on the twelve teams, and that's our money maker. Three one four three nine 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 six four six is the Air Comfort Service X line. I want to follow up on this before we get to questions and answers on the other side. BK, so in your scenario, the five through twelve teams would get a buy if they're not in the conference championship, but for the teams that are in the conference championship that slide down to that mark, they would now have to play in consecutive weeks. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that's the breaks. That's the only way you can make it work, man. Like I I think that it's unfortunate it's not equitable, but those teams that are in the conference championship game, the reason why you want to win is to potentially get into the top four, and then you get that extra bye week. But yeah, that's it, it's unfortunate that this is the only way you can make it work. Otherwise, we get rid of conference championships. Those are the ways that you can do it. Can do that. That's money. Exactly. So we can either get rid of the tens of millions of dollars that this produces via the television rights deals, or we can just admit that this is there's never going to be a perfect way to make all of this happen simultaneously. Unless we want to get rid of all of the bowl games, which, again, would cost them tens of millions of dollars in revenue from the TV rights deals. We don't lose money. Also not happening. So what do you do? You make the kids go out there and do something that is unfortunate, which is playing, you know, basically 16 weeks of football to be able to win the national championship. That's not ideal, but that's the way that it's going to have to work. I don't know how much this would help, but could you start? We've got week zero now, quote unquote. You can start the, start the season week zero a week and then you earlier. Get, yeah, that's what I would They're say. They're not going to do that either, though, because now you're getting into like mid-August when you're starting Idiot. the regular season. No, I'm not saying he's like what you're saying is fair. They're just not going to do it because this is he how vehemently the sport disagrees. Operates. He hears what you're saying. I don't. I think what he's saying no, is I, I think right. that's what they should do. I think they should move the season up. But they won't do that with a calendar. I, I don't know why, but they they won't. I think some because they're because students of the first. Exactly. Well, I think it's because the the students aren't on campus yet, and they don't want to lose out on the ticket revenue that comes with the students being on campus. But education is more important. There. Exactly. Coming up next, questions and answers here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe it's BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Six four six is the Air Comfort Service X line for questions and answers. Let's get to this one from the three one four. Alex, what is your door etiquette in terms of holding the door for someone? Oh. Is there a cutoff time? Uh. That's a really good question. No, I feel like down the hall. If they are, yeah. if I can say, and this means something different for everybody, of course, but if I can say they are down the hall from me, I'm probably not holding the door for them. If I can see them and they're walking towards the door, I'm probably going to hold it for them. Really? Yeah. Oh, see, I think that is highly uncomfortable well, when they're too far away. It's very rude to do. Oh, what are you trying to say? <laughs> no, it's rude for me to do because then I'm forcing that person to run to the door. Right. And it's really awkward, but I'd feel so rude if they get up there. I guess it comes down to what's in their hands, too. If you've got something in your hands, I'll hold it for you. But if you can open the door by yourself, then do it yourself. Sure. Unless it's like, you know, where you don't have to run to the door. Yeah, I'm kind of with you. Where if you have to run to the door, you're kind of on your own. Yeah. Um, unless you do have stuff in your hand. Like if you're carrying a bunch of stuff, I would hold yeah, the door. Like but... if I see something, I'm going to hold the door open. Like if you've got to wait more than 60 seconds to hold the door, then don't be a jerk. That's fair. Probably that's a good one. 60 seconds. Wow. Yeah. 
That's a long ass hallway. I feel like it's like 20 I'm, seconds. I'm thinking more like to 20. If it's going to take you more than 15 to 20 no. seconds to get it, to me, it's probably not to worth 20 it. Feels long. I'm thinking I more I'm thinking parking like lot. Five seconds. You can't get here in five <laughs> seconds. Get the door. I'm thinking more parking lot than sure. like hallway. Like hallway, I'm going to hold it no matter what if you're coming. But like if I see somebody get out of their car, I'm not holding big... the door for you in the hallway. Why? Get your own door, Alex. Wow. Whoa. 314-399-9646 is the air comfort the service door yourself. From the 636. Guys, Mo says that he would like to see innings eaters for the Cardinals this season. <laughs> oh, you got him. Is that on Ollie as much as it is on the pitchers? Uh, yeah, I think it's a combination of both. And I think it's going to be one of the great tests for Ollie Marmol this year. Now, I also think it's noteworthy. Ollie Marmol allowed his pitchers to see the third time through the order more than all but two teams last year. In terms of batters face third time through, Cardinals were right up there in the top three in Major League Baseball a season ago. So Ollie gets a lot of criticism, fair or otherwise, for removing his starters early. He removed his starters early because they were inefficient. He did not remove his starters early very often during the regular season due to the third time through penalties. So... I do think he's a guy that will leave his pitcher out there sometimes longer than what you'd like because he sees value in innings eaters during the regular season as well. But yeah, I, I do think it's as on Ollie as much as it on the, is on the pitchers. I'd agree with that. I, I, I think it is on Ollie as well because I, I'm i fascinated to see what he's going to define as the, the quote-unquote breaking point to pull them from a game. Because like you look at Lance Lynn, yeah, he'll eat innings. But the, the whole question I have, and I think it's going to be the biggest question about the Cardinals 2024 season is... Okay, he can eat innings, but how effective are those innings? You know, some would, I, I would argue six innings and four or five earned runs is not a very effective outing. Now, they may argue in the long run it is, but I maybe I'm more short-sighted, and I'm looking at more of that win. Sure. So it, I'm going to be fascinated to see how Ollie Marmol approaches it. And for maybe just my perception of Ollie, and the, I think the way the fan base views him as a analytically-driven manager – Endings eaters are not really much of a thing because of that third time penalty. So I'll be fascinated to really see it. And I understand what you're saying about leaving those guys in. It is interesting because it, that is something that I would think that if you built the right bullpen around and made two additions to, I could see where he ends up saying, okay, maybe Lynn's only going to give us five today because we've got the full bullpen ready to go. Yeah, I still think Lynn and Gibson are kind of going to be the uh, the sacrificial lamb a lot this season knowing that their ERA is not going to look pretty, but they also know that if they need days off of their bullpen, they're going to keep them out there no matter what. All right, final thing here from the 314, guys. Which of these comebacks to you was more impressive? The Colts coming back from down 38 to 10 in 2014 against the Chiefs in the playoffs or the Patriots 28 to 3 comeback against the Falcons in the Super Bowl in 2017. I think it's the Falcons yeah. uh, blowing that 28 to 3 lead it's, against the Patriots. It's the Super Bowl and it was the fourth quarter that they did that comeback. Yeah. Like, I don't know if anything will ever trump that. Uh, now, as a Chiefs fan, I don't know that anything will ever be worse than losing that game against the Colts I don't in the remember playoffs. That game. Oh, it was terrible. What Absolutely year was it? terrible. 2014, I yeah, think it 2014. was. Um, I remember that because the Andrew Luck comeback game where yeah. he fumbles at the goal line and then scores on it is. I remember that because I was a booth assistant for Curbs at the time at the Blues, and so I was on the elevator watching that game take Jamal place. Charles got hurt. I was on my was way home awesome. from Las Vegas. I went to Vegas for, uh, I guess it would have been my 21st birthday that year. And you didn't stay for that game? No, I, we had it planned already prior to Jerk the game move, being scheduled. Man. When I left, they were up 28 to three. When we landed, they were on the verge of losing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, like, I don't understand what, what happened here. Way to go. Or not 28 to three. They were up 30 at 10 or whatever it was. They, way to go, Casey. It's brutal. All right, coming up next, 
Is it officially Dylan Cease or bust when it comes to the Cardinals improving in their rotation? We'll get into that coming up here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. You've got BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Alex, the number of options that remain for the Cardinals when it comes to upgrading the rotation is dwindling. And as you look at the free agent market, I think there's only two that would legitimately be seen as like tangible upgrades over what you have currently. It's Jordan Montgomery and it's Blake Snell. At this point in time, I think it's fair to say the Cardinals are not going to land either of those via the free agent market. Do you guys agree with that? We can go ahead and write off either Monty or Snell as legitimate options for the Cardinals. Yeah. I don't know if I'd write Monty off, but probably yes. I'd be I'd be surprised. Scale of one to ten, what would your level of surprise be if the Cardinals, if it came out tomorrow or anytime the Cardinals have signed a deal with Jordan Montgomery, so your like level eight? of surprise to that would be okay. Eight. Yeah. Somewhere in that range. Yeah. I think mine would be like a nine. Like yeah. I'd be pretty shocked if that ended up being the case. The trade market is where we've turned our attention to. If they're going to make any kind of an upgrade in this rotation prior to opening day. And with that in the back of our mind, I go over to Jeff Passon's piece from earlier today on ESPN.com, where he says Dylan Cease, according to his sources, quote, is still likely to be moved. He adds that the White Sox suitors have narrowed the chances of either Burns or Bieber getting dealt in the coming month. So are dwindling. That is why, according to Jeff Passan, Jesus Luzardo's name continues to percolate among teams that are interested in a starter. He then continues from there saying that the price would be significant for Luzardo, probably even higher than what it would be to acquire Dylan Cease. Alex, as you look at the potential trades that are out there, and J.P. Morosi brought up again yesterday, hey, maybe Seattle could do something where they trade for Dylan Cease and then trade one of their starters. I don't think they're going to do that, but do you still view any of these guys as legitimate options for the Cardinals? I mean, if I had to pick one that's legitimate, it would be Dylan Cease because it's probably going to cost you the the least to acquire. But I, if Seattle is still going to be in the conversation of moving a starting pitcher, I think they should be a realistic option for the Cardinals. Now, do the Cardinals do it? Probably not. And I would still put Framber Valdez's name out there, although we haven't really heard much since yeah, Ken Rosenthal like reported that, kind of... that. He went on vacation, that's yeah, why. It makes sense. It makes sense. But I, I still think there's legitimate options that the Cardinals could go out there and acquire from a fan's perspective. But from a Cardinals perspective, I'd say no. I, I think the weird offseason. I think the Cardinals now. are just done. Yeah, I I, I think that Cease is like the only guy that I would circle right now because I, I don't think the Cardinals want to give up Nolan Gorman. I, and, and he's the guy that I think would have to go back in a Lazardo deal because the Marlins aren't trading Lazardo for a prospect call. They're trading to help the big league club, and they go, we got a lot of depth at starting. We can pluck one of those guys to help improve the offense. With the White Sox, I think you could probably get him for a prospect-oriented package. Or you may, and I say that, and maybe you do have to include a – major league piece, but it's not a 40 home run piece. Maybe it's like the Donovan type, someone like that, or a Burleson type that's got to go involved in that deal. But he's more of a prospect-led package to go acquire him. 
I think that's the kind of move the Cardinals are looking to do if they're looking for starting pitching. I, I think if they're going to acquire a guy that's going to slide into the top of the rotation, they're going to try and do it by plucking guys from the farm system and maybe like a complimentary piece on this major league roster to go and get that guy rather than trade Nolan Gorman. Because I think they still value Nolan Gorman as, man, that's 40 home runs, and we don't really have that kind of power from the left side. And if they're, we, I think you mentioned this yesterday, BK, if they're using those zips projections, and, and they're, they have their own formula, but sure. if they're using something along those lines and their model says, hey, Goldie's hitting like 21 home runs, Arnado's hitting 23. Well, yeah, then you cannot trade Gorman's power out of this lineup. And that's where they may say, okay, well, then you can pluck us from the Lazardo market, the Gilbert market, if he's available. We'll go out there and see if we can make a deal with some of our prospects that we have in the system. I think it all comes down to how they view the roster right now. And that may seem obvious, but what I mean by that is, do they view themselves as being in a window? And if they do, like, is this the beginning of what they believe is a winning window where they're trying to build around Jordan Walker and Mason Wynn and all of these young guys, uh, Nolan Gorman, Brendan Donovan, Lars Newport? Is that the winning window is like the future of those guys? Or do they view the winning window as the end of Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt's primes here in St. Louis? Because depending on how they view that will alter the way that they view the rest of this offseason. If you view it as our winning window is with the next group of players that we are developing right now. Well, then it makes a lot of sense, honestly, that they went out and got Lance Lynn and Kyle Gibson, because what they're really doing is they're buying themselves time. Those guys are for the Cardinals rotation. What players like Kasperi Kapanen and Jakub Vrana were for the blues this year of, Hey, they're placeholders. They're going to have these spots where Jimmy Snuggerud is going to eventually be. And Zachary Bolduc is eventually going to be, And when you look at the Cardinals, I could see the corollary there. That being said, though, I I don't view it that way. I view them as being in a winning window that is determined by Goldie and Arenado. If you're going to have those guys on the roster right now and you're going to try to win with them, well, then let's go for it, man. Because you look down to Atlanta, they just made the move that the Cardinals are eventually going to have to make. It's going to hurt. Like, I've seen a lot of national analysts say, you know what, I don't really love this trade for Atlanta, where they decided to give up Von Grissom, who was a previous top 100 prospect, a guy who every year of his minor league career has hit at least 300 at that respective level. It's a hell of a player, man. Nice bat to have from the right side of things. He's got like six years of club control remaining. That is not a guy you typically give up for one year of club control over a starting pitcher. But that is exactly what Atlanta did. Why? Because he was redundant. They didn't have a spot for Von Grissom in their lineup at second base. He's blocked at shortstop. He couldn't beat out Orlando Arcia at third base. They've got a guy that's blocking him. So what do you do when you've got a surplus of position player talent at those spots? You trade one of them. You trade one of them for the thing that you don't have. We've got too many middle infielders. All right, let's take the guy that is young, potentially going to be really good. And let's move him for something that we don't have. What do the Braves not have a front end starter? They needed another guy that adds to the front end of their starting rotation when they get to October. They decided to do that for Chris Sale. Where's the Cardinals move like that? I don't know who it is. I can't give you the exact name. I don't know if it's going to be Dylan Cease or Jesus Luzardo or if it's going to be one of the guys from the Mariners or if it could be Fran Valdez or somebody that we have not even mentioned on these airwaves yet. But that is the move that they are missing. The Braves are aggressive in going out and finding that creative answer to the problem that they believe exists on their roster. When have the Cardinals done that? When was the last time you looked at the Cardinals and said to yourself, man, that is a super aggressive move. 
and I don't know if it's going to work for them, but I really respect it. They don't do that very often, and it's something that they're missing. It is something that they have to do if they're going to get serious about winning right now during this window that I believe they have, even if they don't, with Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt. I I don't think they define a window. Like I I don't think they define it as whether it's the Goldie Arenado, like you mentioned, or the Gorman-Walker window. Because they won't define it as a winning window because then you have to kind of push chips in on one of those. And I I don't think they do that. I think they just view it as, we got to stay consistent. And that's why they try not to trade some of those pieces that you're talking about. Like, uh, in theory, what they, what I thought they were going to do was you have Sajacy, who's a guy that right now is blocked. I mean, where he, where's, what's his future here? I don't Utility know. Player. Yeah, maybe. But like, you have a Donovan you're that's like here. Five of those. I, I, what I'm saying is, if the future for him is utility player. That's not the best use of that exactly. resource potential. But but you had him, and then I thought like Herrera was going to be that guy because he had Kisner in the backup, and instead they just let him go and sent him off in the wind, and then brought up Herrera to be the backup. Like still in they had assets. Future. You, exactly. You clearly, are viewing Tommy Edmond as your starting your starting center fielder right now. Just go ahead and make that bet, and Palacios can be your fourth outfielder. It's fine. Just go ahead and go with that. By the way, you've got a guy that's starting out next year in AAA that you think is going to be your eventual answer in center field. So go ahead and trade Dylan Carlson. Just just end it. Just say, you know what? We were wrong. We didn't get what we thought we were going to get out of Dylan Carlson this year. It's time for us to move on. The Mariners did that. Look at how much they put into Kalanick. It didn't work. And they said, you know what? We're going to go ahead and have to make a move here. It's a hard move. It's a move that our fans aren't going to like, but we got to do it. The Braves did that with Von Grissom. They thought he was going to be their answer at shortstop long term. They played him for 65 games accordingly. It didn't work. They decided Orlando Arcia is a better option for us there. So go ahead and go with the guys that you think. Make your bets and then live with whatever the results and are. The Cardinals seem to want to have all of their bets available to them, and then they're hedging every single one of them. Yeah. And the result is, okay, we're going to have to be light in a significant way somewhere else. And, and that's their that that's the problem is they're not willing to make that bet because they would view a bet not as an all-in move, but a move that could set them back in the future. And their concern is – we don't want to go through a – they would rather have a 20-year stretch of above 500 baseball, always in the race in the division, and then have like the one outlier like they had this past year, rather than go, what if we had like five to seven years where we were like really good, had a winning window, and potentially be set back and maybe not go in a rebuild, but have a retool where we're below 500 for like three to five years. And, and that's the issue is they just want that consistency. And look – to. There's a lot of respect to having that. Absolutely. What they what they accomplished in this in the 2000s is really impressive. In the decade with Mo, this being the first year below 500 in a really long time. But when you do do that and you set that as the that is the standard is we're just going to do this. It does say you know what we can't push chips in because we're more focused on not just the success of this year, but a lot of success over the long run. Not just in what the it looks like three to five years, but three to seven years in the success that they do. So I, I think that's the problem. Is they? I think they wait too long to make decisions. I, though. I, I agree they, with that. I, I think they won't make the bets, and they, they wait too long on prospects. I think they overvalue their prospects. I think that's their biggest issue. I think issue. it's because of fear of what's taken place in the past, but I also think they're, they're, they're fearful of being short in an area that they can't Absolutely. fix. And when you got the, all these middle infielders, like the Cardinals love their scrappy utility infielders <laughs> that can do anything, well, why would we trade if we've got Donovan and Tommy Edmond and Nolan Gorman, and now we've got Thomas the JC, uh, 
My thing is like you can go to the the market right now if you really wanted you to find and those. find one of those guys. Like, look at five million Merfield. bucks. The, exactly. The Cardinals kind of have the the mindset of like hoarders to where it's like I don't want to give this up. This I'm I'm going to find use for this at some point because when you I get what? into a playoff game, this is what I need. I don't know if this is the case for you at home, Alex. It, it used to be a lot worse for us. It's not this way anymore now that we have Luca, but. I am somebody that at anything, if there's ever a decision, like if we're moving, for example, you know how you go through the stuff where it's like, hey, keep and put into a box that we're going to move with or get rid of and let's go ahead and throw it away or give it away. I'm always a, if there's a 50-50 decision, get, get rid of it. Like if there's any question about whether or not we're going to need this in the future, go ahead and put it in the box that we're going to give away. My wife is the opposite. If there's any question of if we could potentially need it 10, 20, 15 years down the road, go ahead and keep it because we, we're going to want that yeah, down the we're road. We're living right? that life right now with our, our toys for the girls. Exactly. And give them away. That is what the Cardinals do. The Cardinals are the team that looks at the thing that they have, the toy for their kid that they know, oh, we're never going to need this. But in 18 years, when baby Luca is now going off to college, I want him to be able to decide if he wants to keep that yep. for his basement that he will never use, never touch again, never see. I want him to be able to have that as a memory for himself. That's what the Cardinals are. The Cardinals are doing that, but instead of being memories and toys and all that, it's Dylan Carlson. It's Alec Burleson. It's Thomas and JC. It's Victor Scott. It's Tommy Edmond. It's we want all of these things to be here because we developed them and other teams can't have them because they are ours. And then what ends up happening is you keep them for one, two, three, too many years. And then it's like, oh, does anybody want these guys? No, you guys don't want Tyler O'Neill. Can we get a reliever? A relief? Just a reliever. We'll take whatever. No relievers? Okay. What about like a rule five pick? Is no. there anything we you can get? You get international money. And that's what ends up happening, man, is they wait too long on these players to make a decision. And then the rest of the league has made the same determination as the Cardinals have, which is, yeah, that guy can't play. And, you know, we could say all the time about how Doug Armstrong and John Wazalek are the same person, but that's where they differ. Because if Doug Armstrong views something that's like, hey, this isn't going to play into our future and there's something available to us now, I'll go make that move. And to me, that's what aggressive teams do. They say, this guy doesn't fill a void for us. This guy is just a piece of the puzzle. We've got to go fill a void. So let's move this so we could go get something and, else. And Army, to his credit, defined a, defined a winning window. He yeah. said when they brought in O'Reilly, hey, well, this is the window. We need to win right now. We, he said yeah, five, we've got a five-year yeah, winning five window. Years. And he defined it. The Cardinals have never said, like, yeah, this is the time. And look at what they did in those five years. Now, of course, you win the Stanley Cup, but we, we, we shoot it down now because it didn't work out. But they were so aggressive to where they traded for Justin Falk. They signed Tory Krug. Like, they were always in motion to keep that window alive. And they... They really tried to maximize it. It yep. didn't work but because they nearly of the pandemic. Did. Yeah, the pandemic. I think the pandemic really screwed them on a lot of this. They might have been talking about another cup. Or at least another run, if nothing else. I mean, that team in 2021 was really, really good. good. Really, 2020 really good. was also the and year that they shut it down. It just got shut down because of the pandemic. So it is what it is. But they they saw the window, and they tried their best to take advantage of it. I still think they should have brought Petro back, but neither here okay. nor there. He's Alex. That's T-Bone on BK. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, speaking of the Blues... They are going up tomorrow night against the Vancouver Canucks, who are on an absolute heater this year, Alex. But last year, they were, they stunk. They fired their coach midway through the season. How'd they get to where they are today? What do they have that the Blues do not? We'll get into that coming up in about 15 minutes. NFL Quick Hitters coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. 
alongside Alex and T-Bone. I'm BK. You got BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. All right, let's get into some NFL quick hitters. I love hearing that sound. That music is just this time of the year. Nothing better. Alex, what is Calm more likely to happen in your opinion? The Bills get the two seed in the AFC. Ooh. Or they miss the playoffs entirely. Oh. Here is how either scenario would take place. To get the two seed, very simple. They beat the Dolphins. If the Bills beat the Dolphins this weekend, they get the two seed because they have the head-to-head victory over the Chiefs. Don't they have to have the Browns lose, though? Nope. Browns are locked in to their spot in the playoffs oh, right wow. now. Okay. Oh, yeah, duh, because they can't get... Okay, I got you. So, the Bills win. They are the two seed. If they lose to the Dolphins and the Jaguars beat Tennessee... And the Steelers beat the Ravens, who are expected to play their backups this weekend. The Bills would miss the playoffs entirely. So let me give you the scenario one more time. They lose to Miami, and then the Jaguars, who need to win this weekend, beat Tennessee. And the Steelers, who need to win this weekend to get into the playoffs, beat the Baltimore Ravens backups. If all of those three things happen, the Bills are out. Completely miss the playoffs. So their scenario is either two seed or out of the playoffs. Which one's more likely in your mind, I'll say two seed because I think they beat the Dolphins. I I think the Bills aren't going to leave it up for chance. The Dolphins are already banged up on their defensive side, which is going to make it very tough to beat Buffalo. And that game's played in Buffalo, correct? Or is that Uh, in Miami? It's in Miami. Okay, so that's at least a home field advantage. But I just, I'll say it's a lot more likely that the Buffalo Bills get the two seed because I just don't think Miami's that good. Yeah, I I think when you look at this on paper, in theory, you would think it's more likely they miss the playoffs. But then you go, wait a minute. Has Miami ever beat anybody good? No. The answer to that is no. They, they've been terrible against the good teams this year. Man, I feel bad for them because it's the exact same thing that happened last and, year where they just crumble down the stretch. And they're dealing – Tyreek clearly looks hurt. Mm-hmm. Bradley Chubb's now out for the year. Waddle has a high ankle sprain. Xavier yeah, like, Howard's out. They are in serious trouble. And that's that's the injuries. I, they are the paper tiger of the NFL where they can beat all the bad teams. But then when Mostert you go up against hurt. someone – Yeah, when you go up against a competent team, they just don't show up and they get shellacked. So I – I, I think Buffalo is going to beat them, and I think it could be ugly, too. I, I think they're going to get the two seed. I think Buffalo is going to beat them, and then I think Buffalo, if they get the two seed, is the really the only threats to the Ravens in the AFC. Them getting the two seed would be a really big deal. Don't forget about Joe Flacco and the Browns. Grandpa Dynamite? Just yesterday, you, know you were all in. You know what? You're right. I take it back. I actually placed a bet last night on the, yeah, on the you Browns. Did. I placed a bet on the Super Bowl matchup, Browns versus 49ers. Oh, what were the odds on that one? At, uh, I think it was 25 to 1 for those. Grandpa Dynamite ain't going to make it that you far, guys. So? No, old age will kick in sooner I'm with or later. you guys. I think it's more likely that they get the number two seed. But don't write this off. If they end up missing out on the playoffs, that would be one hell of a storyline. Because then I think you could make an argument that the second, maybe third best team in the AFC ends up missing out on the playoffs entirely. And, and the thing is, is... And if they do, by the way, sweeping changes will take place. This game this weekend could decide the future for Sean McDermott and Stephon Diggs. I think Diggs is already probably gone. Diggs is gone. I think think you're right about Sean McDermott. He should be a chief. Come on down, buddy. I think Diggs is mentally quit on that team. Yeah, he's done nothing for like the last six weeks. Why he's had like way down? He's at like sixty-five percent. I I think he's just given up. All right, next He'll thing. He'll be a up. cowboy, by the way. Speaking of the Cleveland Browns, which team is more likely to go on a run to the Super Bowl, boys? 
The Browns or the Miami Dolphins? Browns. <laughs> Browns. I just That's ish crazy. Talk, I just ish talk to Miami no. Dolphins. No chance. Well, but here's the thing. Like, what, what are you elite at? We always ask that question. And I don't know if Miami's still elite at offense, especially because Tyree kills her. health. Do you think they're going to be healthy? My answer is no. No. Raheem Moster, Jalen Waddle, both legitimately injured right now. Not just hurt, but injured. And then Tyreek Hill is clearly hurt. And then in the playoffs, what's more important? And I think defense is a lot more important in those big games. And it's crazy, Cleveland's dude. one of the best at it. It's Joe Bleepin' Flacco in the year 2023. And we just... 2024, excuse me. And we just said they are more likely to go on a run than the Miami Dolphins, who for the first two months of the season were the talk of the NFL with what they were doing offensively. That's crazy. I, I think you're right. I agree with you. But that's wild to say. Right I, now. I still think that if the Cleveland Browns pull out any victory in the playoffs, we're not talking about Joe Flacco. We're talking about a play that Miles Garrett made or one of their defense. I play makes. And, and I do. I agree with what you said, where defense matters in the playoffs, because you can go in as a team like Miami, where they basically have to win every game of shootout. Minnesota Let's just be did honest. It last year. But the problem is, is if your offense has an off day, like Tua just has a bad day. What are you going to put your cap on? Like, yeah, if, or if you have a couple of turnovers. Yeah, like, Joe, like Joe Flacco, it is totally possible. He could throw three picks, like under 200 yards in a game, and yet the Browns' defense does what it does, mm-hmm. holds a team to like five five points, six points, and they end up winning the football game Field because of it. safety. Why yeah. is that crazy? Like, I, I know. It's just an odd number, and I don't know why I said it. But that that's why they can at least say, you know what? Flacco doesn't have to carry the team. It'd be great if he did. But if he has a bad game and we turn the ball over, at least we know our defense is still going to keep us in the game. Miami turns the ball over, <laughs> ball game, it's over. All right, let's go over to the NFC. Which team is more likely to pull off a first-round upset in the playoffs? The Rams <laughs> oh, yeah. or the Tampa Bay Buccaneers? As of today, the Buccaneers would be scheduled to play against the Philadelphia Eagles. That would be the 4-5 matchup. The Lions would be slated to play against the Rams. These could all change. The NFC is much more up in the air right now than the AFC is with its seating. But if these were to take place, more likely to pull off an upset, the Bucks or the Rams, Alex? I mean, this isn't even a conversation. It's the it's the Rams. I, I, as much as I think that the Bucks did a good job this year with what they have, and I made a statement on Friday that I'd give the comeback player of the year to Baker Mayfield, like, we're talking different conversations right now. Like, the Rams still have an offense that can compete, even if I disagree with it. Like, you still have Cup, you've got Puka, and Kyron Williams is just going off right now. He's the second best, most productive uh, fantasy running back. It's incredible. Year. It's incredible because at the start of the year, I don't think anybody even knew who he was. So, well, other than here in St. Louis. Well, of that's course. very true. Proud but of our I, guy. Meant, I meant fantasy football wise, people did know who he was. But it, it's the Rams. They've still got Aaron Donald that can make plays. So, I just don't think Tampa's going to win. They're going to be a fun story that they got in, but that's going to be it. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's the Rams. And I would have heard the argument for Tampa Bay going into last week because they've been playing pretty well. And Baker looked pretty good. And then, like, that New Orleans Saints team stinks, and they laid an egg at home to them. And I'm out on the Tampa Bay Bucks. I think it is the Rams. Like, their defense isn't great by any means. And if they do turn the ball over, they would be in trouble. But their defense is fine. It can help keep them in the game. It can get a couple stops when they need to. The offense is legit, though. Kyron Williams has been an awesome running back. They've got two legitimate weapons in Puka and Cooper Cup. And then don't sleep on Robinson. Robinson's played really well since Tutu Atwell went down. They've got a great offense. So I think that offense, if they get hot and Stafford gets into a rhythm, they could beat, I think, just about anybody outside of the 49ers. Their problem is they're they're very likely going to have to take on the Niners in the uh, divisional round based on where they're at seeding-wise. So I... I think their run will stop there. I'd be pretty pretty surprised if they continued. But if they 
if they played against the Cowboys or the Lions for some reason, if the seven seed ends up upsetting the Cowboys in the first round, for example, or if for for some weird reason, the Cowboys end up losing that division this week and the Eagles win it. And then the Cowboys and the Rams, move, whatever it ends up being, if the Rams were to face against the Lions or the Eagles in the second round, that would be interesting to me. I, I think they could actually win that game, but it's unlikely. By, by the way, why is it that Sean McVay's not getting more talk for coach of the year? Guys, I thought this team was going to win five games. They could get to 10 if they win this Who weekend. Who is, as of today, the favorite to win Coach of the Year? Do you know? Is it Dan Campbell still? I think, I think it was Campbell, if I remember. I, I would say Campbell's up I'd there. I'd give it to Campbell. I really like what Sean McVay has done this year. I personally would actually vote for uh, uh, Stefanski with the Cleveland Browns. If you've got Joe Flacco at this age yeah, and true. you're no potentially going to win 12 games this year, given all of the injuries, like you said, Nick Chubb and Deshaun Watts, Nah, who cares about Deshaun Watson? But I, I think that he would be my coach of the year this year. Or John Harbaugh. I, I think you can make a case yeah. for John Harbaugh as well with the way that that thing has come together. Um, I think decisions with your coaching staff should be played into this. You know, like he hired the right guys and he deserves credit for that. Um, that being said, I, I would definitely go with the Rams here. They, they would be my team that is more likely to go on a run in the NFC's playoffs. All right. Final thing here before we move along. Where do you guys stand on the rust versus rest conversation? It's going to be a lot of teams going into the weekend that are locked into where they're playing. The Browns are one of them. The Chiefs are one of them. The Lions, I believe, are locked into the, the three seed, barring something unforeseen. Where do you stand on this? Would you say play your starters, no doubt about it? Definitely rest your starters. Play some of the. Where are you at on this? Rest versus rust. I mean, some guys I can understand the rest, but like, I'll just take the Kansas City Chiefs, for example. There ain't no way in hell I'm resting Patrick Mahomes right now. You're playing him this weekend? Uh, yeah. I mean, and risking the injury. Yeah, fine. Hmm. Well, what are you going to do? Regardless, like, uh, you need to be in the right mindset. I know he's Patrick Mahomes and you can figure it out. But there are some teams that I feel like you want to be in the right groove going into a playoff series, especially if you're not a one or a two seed. So I would lean more towards playing them. And look, if an injury pops up, then that's what's going to happen. I, I think every every situation's unique. Like the Chiefs one, I, I actually agree with Alex. Because they've played like crap lately. Yeah. And they got to find some kind of rhythm going into the playoffs. And I know it's only one game and it's probably unlikely they find it. But at least give yourself a chance yeah. to find it. Um, I, I, Baltimore, for example, a team that has found the rhythm is playing very well. The thing that I've always thought of, and, and nobody does this, not very often at least, is I would have my starters play the first series and then pull them out. Yeah. Like it's the fourth game of the preseason because then you get, you're get you at least still in the rhythm of going through the pregame routine and then you play that first series and then you're just out. That way you're not just sitting there rusty. I, I like the idea of playing the first series. I know you're risking injury, yeah, I wouldn't do but it. I, I would still go with the first series and then pull my and starters. And Lamar Jackson might be another one of those guys too that falls into this conversation. Like maybe tell him to stop running the damn ball, but I want him in the right mindset and sitting around for two weeks might not be the best thing for him. Yeah, I, I lean towards the rest. The Chiefs are banged up right now, dude. That's a big part of this conversation is that they have a lot of guys, including Travis Kelsey, who's clearly not right physically. I think Patrick Mahomes has been getting beat up in recent weeks. So I'm giving them full rest. Do not do anything this week. You're not getting the bye for the first time in a while. Go ahead and use this as your bye week and get rested up mentally, physically, emotionally. And let's get ready for the first round of the playoffs. I would do that if I'm the Chiefs. I would do it if I'm the Browns. I would do it if I'm the NFC and I'm the Lions who are like 97% locked into the three seed as well. I, I would go ahead and rest as many of my significant starters as humanly possible. It's impossible to do it for everybody, but to avoid the risk of injury, I, that would be the way that I would play it personally. But I know there's some conversations that are taking place that 
Other people disagree with that. So uh, interested to hear the other side. Hot take if Blaine Gabbard plays well this week. He's my starting quarterback in the playoffs. Coming up in 15 minutes, let's dive into the junk drawer. But next, what do the Canucks have that the Blues do not? And can the Blues follow their path to getting into contention as soon as next year? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You got BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. So the Vancouver Canucks are one of the best teams in the NHL this year, Alex. And I'm trying to figure out what they have that the Blues don't. Talent! Goalie! T-Bone! What the hell, man? What? You can't yell talent in a segment like this. I didn't. I yelled goalie. So you look at what they're doing right now. JT Miller's been awesome. 16 goals, 50 points in 37 games. He's basically their version of Robert Thomas, Alex Ferrario. And I'm just talking about a points perspective. I want to make this very clear. Some of these players are different stylistically than the guys that I'm going to compare them to on the Blues. Uh, I was going to say, I think you compared Robert Thomas to the wrong player, but go ahead. Quinn Hughes is a puck-moving defenseman, very young, very quick, good on the power play. That is your version of either Tori Krug or Scott Perunovich, whichever you prefer. Elias Pettersson. 15 goals and 45 points so far this year. He is an all-around player. That's that Robert Thomas. is essentially... That's Robert Thomas. Puchnevich. Oh, my God. Brock Besser, for you, <laughs> is essentially your version of... Eh, we'll go Jake Neighbors. Oh, yeah. Jake's put up 25 goals already this season? Close enough. Yeah, 12. You're right. That's the that's the young man's goals. Philip Ronick, for them, is what Colton Pareko is for you. I would so agree Alex, with that. why are the Vancouver Canucks so much better right now than the Blues? Well, obviously, it's coaching. They got the right message with uh, Rick Tocchet. In all Tocchet. seriousness, what, what went right for them? Because a year ago, this is a team that fired its coach midway through the season. They finished the year essentially right at 500, 38, 37, uh, and 7. They were in the midst of kind of a retool, if you will, where they were really good in that that um, bubble year where they mm-hmm. went up against the Blues in the postseason. And since then, they haven't made it back. Why are they now back on track this year as one of the best teams in the West? Well, I mean, first of all, it is Quinn Hughes. And I mean, like, look at what Quinn Hughes has done over the last few years. Like, he's been good, but he hasn't been Norris Trophy good. And that's a big reason why. I mean, his numbers that he's putting up is contributing to all of the offense that they're scoring. I think Rick Tockett is a massive piece to that puzzle. Like, when they fired Bruce Boudreaux or Bruce Boudreaux, whichever one you want to call him, and brought Tockett in, that was the... That was a very similar move to the win the Blues did with Craig Berube in 2019 because you had a roster that was ready to win, but you needed a coach that could put the right mindset together. And Taka comes in and he's got them all on the same page. Uh, them trading Bo Horvat, I really think had a massive piece of that puzzle. Bo Horvat was the captain for that team, but Bo Horvat might have been the captain of past teams and not the captain moving forward. And they put the C on Quinn Hughes and he kind of took over from there. Um, but I, that that's really a lot of the piece of the puzzle. It's Rick Tockett bringing in confidence. It's some of your best players playing like some of the best players in the NHL. And it's the confidence factor that goes into it. And I don't know why it all clicked, 
But man, did it click quick for that team because in one year, you went from saying Vancouver might have to trade away Brock Besser. They might not be re-signing Pedersen. They might recycle this whole thing to now talking about they're a Stanley Cup contender. So the thing that I find really interesting about them is they are basically what the Blues used to be. Like Rick Tockett is doing with Vancouver what Craig Berube did here in St. Louis, which is breaking the brains of all of the nerds that exist. Discipline. No, the nerds are trying to figure this thing out. It's like, whoa. So all of their expected numbers say this is the most average of average NHL teams. And yet they continue overperforming their expected numbers every single night, dude. They're one of the best teams in the NHL, one of the best offenses in the NHL, despite getting outchanced by the opposition on a regular basis. If you're looking at the Corsi rating this year, they're below 50%. This is not supposed to be possible with the way that they're playing, but they have a very clear identity and they have a great shooting percentage so far this year because they've got good players on their team and they're taking advantage of basically every opportunity that's been presented to them. Is this going to regress at some point this year? Probably. They're probably not as good as their 24, 10 and three record would indicate. And yet They've been able to sustain it so far through the first almost 40 games of the regular season. And this is where it does remind me a lot, Alex, of that Blues team that we talked about going into the, I guess it would have been 2022 playoffs Mm -hmm. where the Blues ended up losing against the Colorado Avalanche. Nobody believed in that Blues team in terms of the national numbers analytics guys. They all said this, this is, it's just randomness and luck that has gone into a very fortunate Blues season. And locally, we're like, nah, man, they're just really good. This is just a good team. And that's what Vancouver has been. And I think our text line might have nailed it. 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line from the 314. Guys, it's very simple. The Vancouver Canucks have a very clear identity. They've all bought into the identity. They know how they have to win on a night-in, night-out basis. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think that that's where the Blues are falling short right now. I don't think the Blues yet know who they are. I don't think the Blues can go into every single game and say, this is how we're going to win tonight. I think Vancouver goes into every single game and knows exactly who they are, how they're going to win, regardless of who the opposition is. And that's the confidence factor. And I know that seems like such a lame thing to point out, but it's what happened in 2019. You had a group of guys who knew who they were and how good they were. They just didn't know how to put it on the ice and display it. Like Vancouver might not be doing this if not for the early success that they had that recognized like, hey, if we play this commitment to this style of hockey, we're going to win games. We're going to go out there and we're going to win. Even if it's not the prettiest, that's that's what this comes down to. And it seems crazy to throw that out there. But if you don't have the confidence in your game, if you don't have the the ability to go into a hockey game and say like, hey, we're down by a goal, but we're coming back into this one. You're not going to win hockey games. And the Blues got to figure that out still. They've got a lot of guys that when things go haywire, it all results in everybody's trying to do something else. Whereas the teams that have success, when things go haywire, it's let's focus in on what we do best here, guys. Pucks in deep, go to the net, and make those deflection plays. That's where a majority of these goals are coming from. It's not the highlight reel plays. Like Elias Pedersen is having a really awesome season, but so is Brock Besser. You know what Brock Besser scores? The way that Jake Neighbors has scored. You stand in front of the net and you pick up those ugly goals and if you're not doing that, you're not going to win. I think a lot of what's happening for them is just, it took time. It took time, man. It took time before Pedersen, Pedersen, excuse me, and Quinn Hughes and Brock Besser, all of these guys came together to become the players that they ultimately needed to be to fit into the roles that they needed them to play to buy into exactly what it is that they're now being able to accomplish. Like 
they they need a time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you're seeing right now is with the Blues, it takes years before you become Brock Pe- Besser or Elias Pettersson. Like, you don't just immediately get into the league and become that guy. You can put up points. Brock Besser early on in his career, 55, 56, 45, 49, 46, 55 points. This year, boom, a legit breakout season in his eighth year in the NHL. He was a minus 20 on the ice last year. Yeah. And it's turned around for him. Elias Pettersson, that dude has been good since the day that he walked into the NHL. I remember that bubble season where we watched him against the Blues and it was like, oh, God, this guy's going to be a problem (laughs) for the Blues. And it was the same thing for Quinn Hughes. Mm -hmm. But it took some growing pain. It took some time before he really became a player that wasn't just a difference maker, but was one of the best in the league. And last year, it came together for him. And now he's being able to be that guy on a winning team. It's year six for Elias Pettersson. I think we're like two years away from that being the case for Robert Thomas, maybe even next year for Robert Thomas, for Jordan Cairo, Jake neighbors, a couple of years away for him becoming the guy that he's ultimately going to be Quinn or excuse me, Quinn Hughes, Freudian slip there. Uh, Scott Perunovich, a couple of years away before we get to him being that player. It, it just takes time for these guys to mature into the players that they're ultimately going to be for the Blues. And I don't think it's crazy to cop a Scott Perunovich to a Quinn Hughes. I know we talked about it a little earlier, but you're never going to know if he is that until you put him up into that spot. And frankly, when Quinn Hughes took off and has having this season was when they acquired Philip Ronick from the Detroit Red Wings. And I know that sounds insane to say, but sometimes those types of players just need some stability. And I, I think one, Scott Perunovich needs to have more confidence instilled in him. And I think he's getting that now with Drew Bannister. You're putting him in a, be- a bit better positioning. But they clicked the same way that I believe Colton Pareko and Scott Perunovich could click. I hope they try it. And I think that's the one piece that I'm like, because I agree with what you guys said. I don't think they have an identity. And I think you do need to give this some time to see them kind of mold into the players that you're hoping they become. The the puck moving defenseman that pairs with the stay at home guy. That's the one I think they're that you hope Perunovich is him, but you're gonna have you're gonna have to quit baby him and see what happens when you do try it. Yeah. And you're gonna have to try it at some point because he he's the guy for me that you look at Preco, I think he's finally solidified himself as that just clearly the number one defenseman. Like there were the last couple of years there were spurts, but it wasn't consistent. This year it's been consistent. Now it's about finding his partner and can you get an offensive minded one? And I, I think you're right. I, I think there is a chance that Scott Pernovich could be kind of like a Quinn Hughes. I mean, you're seeing it. The analytic numbers tell you about it. Now let's see what it looks like and see him try and mold into becoming that kind of player. And again, that's going to take two years, but you got to start throwing him up in the lineup with Colton Preco to find out. He's Alex. That's T-Bone on BK. One way that that ends up happening is if they fall out of contention and this uh, schedule that's coming up is not going to help them in that regard, potentially at least. Uh, the Blues play at, against Vancouver tomorrow night. Alex will have your pregame coverage right here in your home of the Blues, 101 ESPN for that one tomorrow. Tomorrow at six o'clock and then Carolina, Florida, the Rangers, Boston, Philly, and then two against Washington. A whole lot of legitimate playoff contenders coming up on this schedule. It does not get any easier from here. So the Blues going to have to play extraordinarily well to keep themselves in any kind of playoff contention over the next few weeks. Coming up next, we're diving into the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week.
Alex and T-Bone on BK. You got BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. I couldn't tell if I was on the air that first time or not. But you, you weren't. You jumped the gun. I hadn't okay. even pushed the button yet. Yeah, man. So let's T-Bone dive into the jump when you're on the air. Yeah. Alex, would you ever consider celebrating New Year's twice? What? Going from one time zone to another in order to not only have the one celebration, but a second celebration to bring in the New Year. I love New Year's, but it's not a good enough holiday to celebrate it twice. That sounds exhausting. So nice you don't want to do it twice? No. There's only a few holidays that I'd like to celebrate twice. T-Bone, would you consider, if you had the opportunity to do so, celebrating New Year's twice by going to multiple different time zones? No. I'm with Alex. It's it's stupid. Not, it's not it sounds exhausting. So, Happy New Year. you guys Happy probably New Year. wouldn't sign up for this flight that took place over the weekend. A group of travelers attempting to turn back the clock to ring in the new year twice got a rude awakening. United Airlines offered a flight from Guam to Honolulu, which takes just over seven hours and crosses the international dateline. In effect, the passengers that are on board of this plane technically lose a day which means that they could do the countdown to 2024 twice Uh oh we hit a snag the trip was meant to land in honolulu at at roughly seven o'clock hawaii time on december 31st but a lengthy delay forced the passengers to land in the wrong year Uh oh they started out in 2024 they end in 2024 because the flight was 30 minutes late past the 12 o'clock deadline. They were six hours behind due to a late inbound flight. So the individuals that were on this flight, Alex, they were excited about it. Great idea. Quote, too bad it got delayed. I was supposed to be on this flight. Double New Year just isn't happening any anymore. Maybe next year. Sounds exhausting. If this was offered to you and you had zero money that had to go towards it, would you do it? No. You wouldn't oh, even do it for I, free? No. I would do it for free. I would do it for free. I think yeah. that actually sounds like a really good no, time. I just, I'd like to just stay in one spot on New Year's. I don't really want to have to travel back and forth. Oh, see, I, just so I, I mean, can I'm be like, oh, cool, New What do I care? Like I, people behind I me, be cool, a good story. People behind me shoot off fireworks on New Year's, I and mean, it's annoying as hell. I don't know. I oh, like, so that, can we talk about that? This is stupid. What are we doing, guys? Like we don't. Oh, I don't mind the fireworks. It's stupid. Years. Oh yeah, have a two and a one year old and a dog that has all kinds of anxiety issues. Yeah, dude. Still, I've, still, I'm done with I'm it. In. I have officially arrived at the place where I'm old man yells at Cloud when it comes to so shooting off fireworks on New Year's Eve. Yeah, you, uh, guys, we can do this on the Fourth of July. I'm, I'm sure. all for it. That's the thing, right? The thing for Fourth of July is fireworks. We don't need to be shooting that stuff off on New Year's Eve. It's Not a waste at midnight. Of, it's a waste That's of ridiculous. time. It's no, a waste did, of time. I did that a couple of years ago. Now, Grant, Why? the cab. Well, the, cav- the caveat for it was. My grandpa is a New Year's Day baby, and he always wants to. Sh- he's always wanted to shoot off fireworks. So, what's the, but, so he but did like, it for his like seventieth or eightieth birthday. Can't you did just you like, do a couple though? Yeah, it was only that's a handful. fine. Yeah, these things are going off for an hour, man. I live out in St. Charles, where we yeah, might see, as that, well be the wild that, wild west. That yeah. part's a bit. And see, this I'd is this is a, some six one eight just texted this in. Alex, my neighbors use any holiday for an excuse to fireworks. Everything, Halloween, freaking Arbor Day, we're shooting off fireworks. I just don't. understand. Understand it. There's a Fun. fireworks tent by my house don't you love that's to blow open up 24 hours a year. I don't know why. 24 hours. 24 hours Damn. every single day. In just a year? Just a year. Well, every year. Every day. Someone said better than shooting off guns. Absolutely better yeah. than shooting yeah. off guns. But Come why on, are guys. we doing that on a holiday too? 
Can we just stick with fireworks that were meant for firework holidays? Well, every holiday is a firework holiday. No, it's not. Yeah, they make like orange fireworks for Halloween for spooky season. Somebody said, guys, it's one night. It's their property. It's not one night. It's every holiday. <laughs> it's better than barking dogs for 365 oh, days that out is of the year. Because the dog barking is not going to wake up my kid. Granted, yeah. I, I've gotten to the point where I can drown out the neighbor's dog, so it doesn't bother me anymore. But have your I first did, yeah. Have your kid yeah. wake up one time because of a firework and see how much you enjoy it. It only happens, what, how many holidays are there? Ten? Oh, babe, it's exhausting. I, I feel like it's only... At least bound by us. I can't speak to you. <laughs> like, going down to my woods, neck of the woods. Uh, Jefferson County does it for I everything. I have noticed it for other holidays. Just New Year's Eve, which was really annoying this year. I hadn't even really, for, I had totally forgotten that they do that for New Year's Eve out in St. Charles. Now that we have a kid, though, I was very aware of the fact that it was taking place outside. <laughs> I just like, oh. I just don't understand. And they're bottle rockets, too. It's not even like they're cool fireworks to look See, at. Yeah, I don't mind Get it better. for like New Year's Day and Fourth of July, but outside of those two, like, eh. It's harder for me to support it. Somebody said, guys, I felt like Alex on New Year's Eve because I called the cops for the neighbors having their music too loud. I'm officially an old. Wow. I mean, wow. I mean, I didn't do it. I didn't do it for loud music. I did it because there were youngins that were breaking the rules. (laughs) He's Alex. That's T-Bone on BK. We're not talking about this again. Coming up next. All right. So I was thinking about the Cardinals and how they're trying to win right now. Is there any comparison in recent years for a World Series winner that's trying to win the way that the Cardinals are? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. The success of the Rays, I think, has infected everybody. Because there is this attitude now, and it's not just in Boston, it's in a lot of places, that you can patch it together, contend and get into the playoffs, and then maybe catch lightning in a bottle and win that way. And I still think there is a significant history that shows the best way to win is to spend. You know, certainly you have to draft and develop. That's always been true in any era. But I think that at some point you take it to an extreme and it goes a little bit too far. That was Tony Maserati on foul territory yesterday. He covers the Boston Red Sox, Alex, and they were talking about the Red Sox trying to win with what is essentially the Rays model, but doing so in a big market. This is not something that took place as recently as 10, 12, 15 years ago. Boston is losing its mind right now at the way that the Red Sox are being operated. It started with the Mookie Betts trade, and it has continued to where we are today. Alex, they're not alone in that regard, though. You look around the league, a lot of teams are trying to win that way. They're trying to cut their costs to be able to win as much as possible, and they're looking at the postseason saying, ah, it's very clear that's just a crapshoot. Look at the Diamondbacks. They got to the World Series despite clearly not being one of the best teams in the major leagues. So you look at how the Cardinals fit into all of this, and I was thinking to myself earlier today, man, the Cardinals are trying to do something that basically nobody else in the sport has done in recent years which is win at the highest level possible by winning a World Series without tanking and without spending a significant amount of money. So you look at all of the teams that go about it the last decade or so, right? The Kansas City Royals in 2015, they had tanked for like unintentionally 20 years. 
the Cubs tanked intentionally to be able to get good again. And finally, by 2016, they, they broke the curse. 2017, the Astros win it. They tanked. 2018, the Red Sox win it. We don't think of them this way, but that season, they had the number one payroll in the sport. 2019, Nationals, we all know they tanked. Their best players came from the fact that they tanked. The Dodgers spending crazy amounts of money. The Braves tank and then spend. The Astros tank and then spend. And then this year's Rangers, they didn't tank, but they did spend in a massive way. They go out and get hundreds of millions of dollars to their roster. Who's the team that has won (laughs) that's doing it the way that the Cardinals are doing it? And does that mean you can't do it the way that the Cardinals are going about it, Alex? I don't know a team that does it that way. I, I... Because I don't think I don't even know what the Cardinals model is. I I know it's like drafting and developing these young players, but to get to the level that all of these teams were at, you're going to have to tank. They're going to have to be selecting top five, top three, or at least be really good at recognizing some of these players available. So I'm really not sure what their model is. I guess the best comp for a model would be what they did in 2011, but. I think that model has faded away, and frankly, that model had a superstar and the best player in the yeah, game. The Cardinals' model was simply, do you have Albert Pujols? If you check yes, you can do the flow chart to you're a contender. If you check no, you've got the flow chart to you're not a contender. Yeah. That was their model. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think there is a model that the Cardinals are trying to accomplish. I think they're looking at teams that have had success in the playoffs, but success in the playoffs and winning a World Series are two very different conversations. Yeah, I, I think maybe the team would be like San Francisco. Like, they've kind of been that model, but ever since that dynasty kind of broke up, they've had no clear direction because I don't think they've really tanked and they haven't really gone big in free agency. They've tried. Nobody wants to go there, but... They never really have had that, but then they're not even the model I would say of success because they've had so many turbulent years as well, and they essentially just said, you know what, we'll try the Rays model. I, you're right. I, I don't think there is a clear-cut team that you can look at and circle and say, this is what they are following, and this is how it gets to success. I mean, you're right. I mean, it is as simple as, did you develop an internal star that was not just a star, but like the best player in the game? If you did, okay, yeah, then you can basically kind of find the way to contention. So basically what we're saying is that model would be then Walker develops into the superstar and then you're in a good position. Like that's just really hard to ask in a lot of pressure. So we've had a few people, and this is the comparison that I think I would make as well, but then you look at the actual numbers and I don't think it follows up with what we're talking about here. A few people have brought up the 2010, 12, and 14 San Francisco Giants. And that's probably the closest thing, if we're being fair, to what the Cardinals are doing right now. The difference is, though, that team spent, man. Like they, We don't think of them as being one of the top spenders, and they weren't top five, but they were sixth. In 2012, they were sixth in Major League Baseball in, in payroll going into opening day. They finished the year, actually, that season as the fifth highest spending team in the major leagues. In 2014, they were seventh on opening day in spending. By the end of the season, they were sixth in spending. So the Cardinals aren't there. The Cardinals are like 12th to 14th right now in terms of what they're spending on their opening day payroll. So I I don't even think you can really compare it to the Giants from 2010, 2012, or 2014. If you want to compare it to anybody, it is probably like... The Cleveland Guardians, that's the closest thing that you've got. They got there in 2016. They have been a consistent enough winner, I suppose. But it's basically, hey, Cleveland's trying to do it this way. The Cardinals are trying to do it this way. And then there's everybody else that's doing it a different way. And again, this is not me saying that the Cardinals cannot win this way. It's just incredibly difficult. 
Because you've got these teams that are on the bottom end that are tanking to get the elite level talent while it's super cheap and they're trying to catch lightning in a bottle while everything works. This is what the Orioles are doing. It's what the Astros did. It's what the uh, the, the Royals did. The Cubs did it. The Braves did it. Like, these teams tank and then get good really quick and then try to catch on to it, right? The Cardinals aren't doing that. And then you've got these other teams that are at the other end of the spectrum where it's the Phillies, the Braves now that are spinning at a pretty high level, the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Mets. They're just spending like crazy and thinking that money is no object. And so they're getting all the top level money, uh, money deals that are for 28 plus year old players. Cardinals aren't doing that. So the Cardinals are in the middle of both of these models, hoping to thread the needle with, you know, Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado and really solid but not spectacular young players that are coming through the system. It's just an incredibly difficult way to go about things without getting into that top 10-ish in payroll. And this goes back to you got to get aggressive with one more big move, man. It feels like every year, and I... Who was it that said this with us? MLB Network, uh, Mike Farron. Yeah. He said every year it feels like the Cardinals go one step. They're like right up at that line. If they can jump over it, they're a contender. And then they fade back one step short of being an actual contender. And it feels like right now, if they don't go make that one move for a starter, they're at risk of doing that again. And it's that one extra thing that you do to put yourself not even over the top, but into the conversation and I fear that they're unwilling to do it, Alex. Well, and I also think that the reason they're unwilling to do that is because they have a model that isn't win the World Series. Their model is get to the playoffs and anything can happen. And I think there are a lot of teams that operate under that model because they don't have the money to spend and they're not willing to tank. So they said, well, all we got to do is get to the playoffs and then anything can happen. And sure, you can try that all you want, but the problem is when you've got the Dodgers and you've got the Yankees and all of these teams that are willing to spend the money or the teams that have tanked to build a super team, those are the ones you're going up against and you're not going to have success against. And I know anything can happen in the playoffs. Look at what the Diamondbacks just accomplished, but you've been operating under this model since post-2011, trying to find that next Albert Pujols, and sure, you've gotten to the World Series and had some really good teams, but you're not in the same atmosphere as some of the teams that win the World Series. Yeah, and when you operate on that model of anything can happen, and look, I think there is some truth to that, to be fair. Sure. You can't. You can then ultimately, though, set yourself up to not build a postseason team. And I, and that's where, like, I think Mo was asked about this recently, and he said, oh, I don't know, but, you know, we got to get through 162 first. No, I mean, you can do both. You can build a 162-game team and also build a look postseason at the Braves. Look team. Look at the, what the Braves just did. Exactly. They just built for the postseason. They added the, Chris Sale not to help them 1 through 162. They can already win that division. They're the favorites to win that division. If not, they're going to make the postseason as a wild card team. You add Chris Sale to start 15 games of the regular season and hopefully he gives you five in October. Look at uh, the Texas Rangers. They're going to have, like, the right now, they haven't done a whole lot. I, I think their only move is, what, the Tyler Malley deal, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken? But you look at that rotation now and you go, oh, what are they going to be throwing out there on opening day? Opening day, you but, can make a case that the Cardinals have a better rotation yeah. than the Rangers. But then you look post Ulster break <laughs> and you go, oh, wait, DeGrom's going to be back. Scherzer's going to be back. Tyler Malley's going to be on the verge of coming back. And you go, oh, I see what you're doing here. You're just basically piecing it together saying, all right, can we just stay competitive in this window? And then, boom, take off from there to where we're competitive in the back half. You get in. They may not win the division because of that. But they get in, they got the rotation to try and compete. So, And it's tough when you're in the Cardinals position because you're right. When you try to be kind of that mid-tier of spending, you always get those mid-tier free agents. And look, you can find some of those guys that end up doing better than what you project, 
but a lot of them end up being like overpaced, like the Dexter Fowler deal, the Stephen Matz deal, honestly, where you look at it and go, oh, wait, yeah, no, we probably shouldn't have done that. And then when you're in free, when you're at the draft process and you're drafting in the middle, you can find good guys in the middle of the pack, but it's a lot harder to find those guys than it is when you're drafting number one, number two, number three, number four, number five. Those guys, for the most part, end up becoming legitimate studs. It gets a little tougher once you get outside that top ten and always having to pick in the middle. You basically end up always drafting what the Cardinals are really good at, which is always developing that Solid. good complementary player Brendan and not Donovan. getting the superstar. Exactly. They, they end up developing a lot of Brendan Donovan's, Matt Carpenter's, which is a really good player, man. This is not a bad thing. But you need stretch. those guys. You need that player. And too many teams across the majors do not have that player. They fail to develop the connective tissue within a roster. But the Cardinals right now have the stars position player-wise. They have the connective tissue position player-wise. Hell, they might even have the connective tissue that is necessary in their rotation and in their bullpen. But they're lacking that star at the front end of their rotation. And if they don't go out there and acquire it either prior to the season or, let's be honest, they're not going to do this. But at the deadline is the other opportunity that you have to do that. They're not going to do it. He's right. Then you don't allow yourself the opportunity to contend with these teams that acquired or developed somehow got that player via tanking or via spending those other teams are giving themselves multiple opportunities to acquire that player you have talent the solid players that you've got that people maybe are overvaluing because they are young in cost controls use that to go get the player that you do not have right now because you were unwilling to spend because you were unwilling to tank i don't blame you for it i would want to tank here in st louis there is a way to go about this that is aggressive that does not put you back 10 years in your building process, but still allows you to contend in a meaningful level. I just I'm skeptical, highly skeptical and growing more so by the day that the Cardinals are actually going to be willing to do it. All right. Coming up next, let's play a game of better to forget it. Three, one, four, three, nine, 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 six, four, six is the air comfort service text line. Alex, better to forget it. The Cardinals will sign Ryan Helsley to a contract extension and it will end well here in St. Louis. We'll get into that next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Vegas sets them up and we're here to make the call. It's PK and Ferrario's bet it or forget it on 101 ESPN. Three nine 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 six four six is the air comfort service X line for bet it or forget it. You give us a scenario. We will tell you if we are betting it or forgetting it here on 101 ESPN. All right, let's start out with this one, boys. Yesterday, I was reading Derek Gould's chat over in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch website. STLToday.com is more than worthy of your time. There was oh, yeah. a lot of nuggets in there, but this is just one of them. He said, quote, when asked about if there's a contract extension candidate that stands out for him, he said, quote, Helsley stands out as a compelling, unexpected candidate for an extension. The team gives him what he wants in guarantees, and he gets what he's looking for. It could be a good exchange, end quote. Man, Alex, what wild times we live in where the Blues or the Cardinals wouldn't pay him his arbitration money, yeah, right. and now they're going to give him his extension. Bet it or forget it. The Cardinals extend Ryan Helsley this offseason and are happy that they did it by the end of the deal. Oh, forget that one then, because the Cardinals won't be happy when they extend him. I would bet that they will extend him. You think? Yeah. 
that screams card. I mean, we always know that the Cardinals give out extensions, but for some reason they don't give it out to the guys that we think they should give it out to Jordan Walker, Nolan Gorman, those players. Instead, they'll give the extension to Orion Helsley. And I don't think you'll be happy with it because as T-Bone likes to say, one of his rules in life, you don't give long-term deals out to pitchers. Yeah. I would do it. I, I'll bet it if this ends up being a two or three year deal. I think Ryan Helsley is a totally solid and worthwhile bet for the next couple of seasons. I would not do this if it's like a legitimate long-term extension. If we're talking five years, I'm not doing that with any bullpen arm, not named. I, I don't even know if there is one. Maybe Josh Hader would be the only thing that I would even consider. And that's just to get the average annual value down with him. But if it's a two or three year deal, I actually will bet this. I think it could end up being a good deal for the Cardinals if they decide to go this route. Homer. I, I, I would forget it. I, I don't. I don't understand the need to do it because I don't think he's ever going to help price himself. I mean, he's making what three million bucks this year. That's why he's a great year. He'll make seven million. You can't afford a seven million dollar. It's really reliever. buying out that extra year. Yeah. If you get an extra season with him, I'm like who cares? I mean, the Cardinals end up getting him potentially for like ten million bucks when he could get twenty on the open market if he's as good as he was last year. Uh, the problem though is the bolt, bullpen ago. arms are so volatile. I wouldn't want to do that. Totally fair. So that's why I I don't think they'll do this. I, I forget this. I I think they're going to extend Paul Goldschmidt. That they may end up living to regret, but I think that's the only extension they do this offseason. Which one's riskier, Paul Goldschmidt extension or Ryan Helsley three-year deal? What's my deal on Goldie? Three uh, years? I don't think you should do three years, 60 mil. I don't think you should do either of those. He gets the Yadier Molina contract. I would actually say it's probably still riskier on Helsley because he's dealt with injuries. And again, the it, money's like, much less. That's, Money it, would be it like a three-year, let's say it's a three-year $30 million deal for Helsley versus a three-year $60 million but deal for I think if, if when Goldie declines, not if he declines, when Goldie declines, he'll still decline. And I think he'll still be a solid player. Um, if it go, if that extension goes haywire for Helsley, it probably means he wasn't healthy and he never got his dominant stuff again. And that would be more of a concern than like, sure, you're overpaying for a good player, but it's still Paul Goldschmidt. Instead of like hitting second and third and you're hoping for 30 home runs, he's more of like a little, not a leadoff hitter, but like an on-base guy that's hitting like fifth or sixth or hits second still and just gets on base, not hitting for home run power. Alex, what do you got for us? Uh, better to forget it, guys. Michael Penix Jr. will win the college football championship game and go into the top 10. I'm going to bet it. I After seeing some of the breakdowns, that people way smarter than I am have put out on what he did in the college football playoff semifinal game. Dude, it was one of the best games we've seen by any quarterback in college football this year. Maybe the single best game that we've seen by any quarterback. And if he does that again, even to a lesser degree against this Michigan defense, oh boy, that will be something that speaks loudly to observers, specifically with the NFL. Uh, so I'll say better. I think he ends up going, I would say right now, top 15. But if I have to say top 10, I think quarterbacks tend to get pushed up. I'll go for it. I'll say better. I'm going to forget it because I don't think they win the the championship game. Now, I think he could still push his way into the top 10 with a great game. But I think he's probably going to go in that 10-15 range if I had to guess. And, and I think he'll probably stay there because I think Michigan wins this one. So I would forget it, but I, I can I definitely see the path towards it. He plays really well. He can move himself up there. He plays w just good, and they end up winning. I can see him push himself up there. I don't think he goes in the top three, but I think Atlanta is going to be the best option for him. Like if I'm Atlanta, that's the player that I would be targeting for ninth overall. Now, hear me out. This is tinfoil for you guys. If you're Chicago and you're done with Justin Fields, 
but you like Michael Penix Jr. And I don't know why you would do this, but let's just say you're, you're, you, you think he tr- projects better than all these other guys. Do you trade that first overall pick, get assets for that, and then trade Justin Fields to get more assets no. and draft Penix Jr.? And- if you think Michael Penix Jr. is the guy, capital T, capital G, you take him at number one. Yeah. You don't allow any potential shenanigans to take place around you. You just go get your guy. You don't mess with the quarterback, man. If you think that this player is special and he has unique abilities that you can get the best out of and he is just a flat-out better player for you right now than Justin Fields is and will be much better long-term, then you draft him. Jeez, man, stop yelling at me. Sorry. It's I, a tinfoil, okay? I, I like the theory. I, I like the idea, but at that position, like if it's a receiver and that's what you're going to do, like it, I, I think that the Bears should trade down. To get Marvin Harrison Jr.? That's Marvin where I'm Harrison at, too. Jr. There are also a lot of other receivers in this draft. So if for whatever reason something happened in front of you where somebody else takes Marvin Harrison Jr., you just go get one of the other six guys that's going to go in the first round this year that are all really, really good. Not Marvin Harrison, but really good nonetheless. But for the quarterback position, I'm not messing with it. Yeah, same. Uh, Guys, bet it or forget it. I'm not saying this year, but at some point in Scott Brnovich's career with the Blues, he will put up a 40-point season. Oh, bet it. it. I I hate to say this, but I don't think it's going to be with the Blues. I think he's going to be with somebody else. Another Dunn slash Walmart? I just don't want, yeah, I don't want to go down that path, and I don't want to think so negatively here, but he's an unrestricted free agent. I thought he was an RFA. No, he's unrestricted because you already did the RFA with him, and you gave him the one year, and he's got the certain amount of play time Mm -hmm. and the years in the league. And you're, you've got Krug and Letty. And it says he's an RFA. Really? Because I thought uh, Cap, Cap Friendly. Friendly's an RFA. Because yep. I thought Curbs had told me that he was an unrestricted free agent. I mean, they could have it wrong. It's possible. Yeah. Well, regardless, uh, beyond that RFA status, because you're probably only going to go one year with him again, uh, I'm very concerned that they'll look at this and say, no, we've, we've already got two of him. We'll stick with what we've got move forward. I mean, they're, they're playing Scott Perunovic again on the second power play unit. At least they were practicing it today. And Curry was on that first one. I'll bet it. I think he does it here. Uh, guys, let's get through a couple of these before we get to Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues on the other side. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service X line for Better to Forget It. Guys, Better to Forget It, the leader in the NL Central will be under 500 at the All-Star break. I'm going to forget this. I think somebody ends up emerging that's better than that, even if they're not going to be like a 101 team. Yeah, I don't think the Cardinals will be there, but I think like a Cincinnati Reds by the All-Star break will be above that. Yeah, I would forget this too because I. You get to the All Star break; it may not be like ten games over five hundred, but somebody's going to be like a game or two above five hundred. I can't see. I don't even think the AL Central last year had a team below five hundred at the All Star break. Better to forget it. The Cardinals surprise everyone and sign Josh Hader. <laughs> no, <forget laughs> it. no, good one. Mo learned after the Cecil deal. <laughs> I hope. No, he didn't. They're going to give Ryan Helsley money. I I think it'd be fun. I don't think it would be a smart move, but I think it'd be fun. Uh, Better to forget it. Noah Hannafin will be a blue by the trade deadline. I'm going to forget it. I think it'll be a blue in the offseason, or at least the optimistic side of me hopes he's a blue in the offseason. I'd forget it, too. If it's going to happen, I think if they're going to make a big move like that, it'll be in the offseason. I think Calgary's going to hold on to him. I'm going to forget it as well. I don't think he ends up being a blue either at the deadline or in the offseason unfortunately and guys better to forget it Caleb Williams will still be the number one overall pick in this year's NFL draft it. I think it's going to be the mistake I think not as bad as Bryce Young has been but I think it's going to be close to the Bryce Young move to where Drake May Jaden Daniels and I think Michael Penix Jr. are going to be better than him yeah I I would bet it I don't know if he will be a bust because I think he'll have a lot of the Kyler Murray trajectory to where it is you see the flashes, but there's all kinds of like question marks of, is he a good leader? 
can he play at the NFL level? And now we're seeing Kyler, what is this, year five, four, five, six, somewhere in that range? Where he's playing pretty well under a new head coach. I'm going to bet this. I do think it's going to be close, though. I think Drake May is a guy that you're going to hear a lot of buzz about over the next three months or so. You're going to start seeing some of these NFL draft analysts that are like, hey, I know none of you guys watched Drake May, which is true. None of us watched North Carolina, let's be honest. But man, is this kid good. I watched some highlights of him yesterday. He's a fun player, guys. That dude is, he's unique in the way that he goes about things. He's a playmaker. He's He's fun, man. All right, coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we're getting to our BK and Ferrario Rewind. But coming up next, Chris Kerber, the voice of the blues here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. And Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. We're trying to locate our friend, the voice of the blues, Chris Kerber. He joins us each and every Wednesday, right around this time here on BK and Ferrari. Just needs another week off from BK. But Alex, while we're waiting on uh, curbs, I did want to ask you about a story that was posted earlier today over on The Athletic. Because Scott Wheeler and Jeremy Rutherford got together to write about Dalibor Dvorsky, the top prospects that the blues drafted this year in the top 10. And they compared him to Ryan O'Reilly. They said he's got some Ryan O'Reilly qualities based upon what they have seen from him so far. Alex, he had a really good tournament in this juniors championship. He's also been really good since coming over to Canada for Sudbury. Mm -hmm. What are you seeing right now from him? What are you hearing about him? Should Blues fans be excited about Dalibor Dvorsky and where he's at right now in his development. Curve. I mean, I absolutely think people should be excited about this kid. Um, so it was a, so to BK's point, like he's out of the the World Junior Tournament now because his team lost in that quarterfinal round to Finland, but he scored three goals and six points in five games for him, and that's his third World Juniors Tournament, and he's eligible to play in one more. So like Damn. that's massive for a player like that. And I know a lot was made about him going from Sweden to juniors hockey because he wasn't playing well in the Swedish league, whatever the case may be. But with Scott Wheeler's article and with what we've seen and what I've seen so far in this world juniors tournament, he is very noticeable amongst his peers. And at least from just talking to people in this, and I'm not an expert in terms of evaluating prospects, I would but consider you to be thank one. you, man. I appreciate it. But reading stuff and talking with them, when that player stands out above his peers in his own age group is when you know you've got something special. Have you seen what he's done in the OHL? Yeah, he's Dude. more. I mean, he's he's scoring a goal per game. Forget a point per game. He's at 18 goals and 34 points in, in 20 games. He's almost a two point per game type <laughs> of player. And, and again, that is against players amongst his age group. And the other part that people don't talk enough about, because everybody's excited about the offense that Dalibor Dvorsky provides. But the reason that they call him Ryan O'Reilly is because he's very good on the defensive side. Like this could be somebody you talk about Selkie conversations when he gets to the NHL because he's just as responsible in his own end as he is in the offensive zone. And I think he was at 63.8% in the world junior tournament in terms of faceoffs. His coach was in the article that Scott Wheeler and JR put together in junior hockey and for Slovakia. And they all said everybody that's on the teams with him. And a lot of these guys are 19, 20 years old are watching what he's doing. So blues fans should be excited about this. Now. I don't think this is going to be next year. I'm sure he'll be a training camp next year and it'll be noticeable, 
But I think by next year, you're talking about him being in the American Hockey League for the first half of the season. And by midway point next year, halfway through, you're probably talking about some sniffs at the NHL level. Yeah, Army was quoted in this article. Uh, and again, you could read the full thing. It's worth your time over on The Athletic. Jeremy Rutherford put this together. Uh, Doug Armstrong said, you could either see Dalibor Dvorsky back in Sudbury next year, or we could push him to the AHL, or he might make it to the NHL. Who knows? If you, ta- if you take where the young players are drafted, when they come into the league, and when they're important players, you know this isn't going to be just next year. It's just not realistic. History shows that. It was much easier for a guy like Robert Thomas to come into a veteran-laden team in 2018. It's more difficult to do that on a team full of younger players. You see teams that are doing that now, and I think it's really hard for them to learn in this league. Men are not going to back off. They have a job to do, and they Their job is to win games, and they don't care if you're 18 or 19 years old. If they can exploit you, they're going to do it. So, as I said, we plan on having the next couple of years where we're going to be pushing through a retool with some of these veteran players, and then we'll implement some of the young players. But to rush those guys for the wrong reasons is not a recipe for success. Yeah, I love the way that he's going about that. I think it's the exact correct way to do this, man. You don't want to push these players into spots where they're going to fail and then potentially set them back. We talk so often about how important it is to have confidence in this league. And I do think this is one of the reasons why we're not seeing Scott Perunovic playing up in the lineup. We are seeing Scott Perunovic having success in the role that he's playing right now. And I think Scott Perunovic, and he's admitted as much. We talked about this with JR the other day. Scott Perunovic lacked some of that confidence in previous seasons when he got up to the NHL level. So... If I'm the coach here, and listen, they've got better ideas of this than I do, and they're clearly doing this, I'd say, you know what? Let's keep Scott Perunovic in this role for now. Let's make sure that he is completely confident in who he is as a player before we change the role that we're putting him into so he can grow into that player. If the Blues were trying to contend this year, maybe they push that a little further. But because this is a year where they are still a part of that retool, I think you're going to see guys that are growing into those roles, and it takes a little longer than what you might like on the outside looking Well, and the other thing, too, is like you don't put uh, a young player unless mentally he can handle everything that's going to be coming their way. And that's so I just went and looked at this because I I didn't realize kind of how they utilized Ryan O'Reilly in Colorado his first year, but he was 18 years old. He only had 26 points, but he played all but one game. He was used as a fourth liner. I mean, he averaged about 16 minutes a night, and that was on a team that was not stacked with veterans, but they had like guys, Milan Hayduk, and they had Paul Stastny. So Ryan O'Reilly was a young player that was just kind of thrown into the role, and you have to figure it out as you go, kind of like Jake Neighbors has been. But mentally, if that player is ready to take on that workload and go up against some of the top guys, then you give him, an, you give him a shot. And if it doesn't work, he's got an entry-level contract. He's already signed. So if it doesn't work... You just put him in the minors. And if it doesn't work in the minors, then you put him back to juniors because you do have that trial period before he goes back to junior hockey. He's Alex Ferrario. You'll hear him on pre, post, and intermission for the Blues tomorrow night. Blues versus the Canucks with pregame coverage tomorrow starting at 6 o'clock right here on your home of the Blues. Coming up next, we're diving into the BK and Ferrario Rewind. Alex, I want to ask you, why do you think it is that this year's free agency market is taking so long to develop for Major League Baseball? We'll hit it next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. 
Let's run it back with a daily rewind on BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Gloria Loom, your home sold guaranteed realty. Selling your home begins at GloriaHasTheBuyers.com. anything from today's show be sure to check it out on the podcast page 101 espn.com and the free 101 espn app is where you go to find it it is all presented by dobbs tire and auto centers alex this has been a slow moving market in major league baseball's free agency to say the least and it's gumming up the trade market as well really the only big move for a starter that we've seen thus far has been the deal that sent Tyler Glass now to the L.A. Dodgers. Other than that, for all the talk of, you know, the front-end starter Shane Bieber that could be available, uh, Milwaukee's guys that could potentially be available, uh, you look at the Mariners, the Mar- man, none of that has happened. And the reason why is kind of puzzling to me. I, I don't totally understand why this has taken as long as it did. I thought that we'd have to wait until the Yamamoto and the Shohei Otani sweepstakes were over, but... Man, those have been over for a hot minute now. It's not the thing that's delaying this process any longer. And yes, some of this is the Scott Boris clients, but he doesn't represent everybody that's on this free agency market. Alex, of the top 20 free agents, based on the the athletics rankings, 12 of them remain unsigned. Jeez. It is January 3rd. Pitchers and catchers report in like six weeks, I think. What in your mind do, can you think of anything that would explain why this is taking so long? Why the market appears to be so delayed this year? Prices. Uh, it's the only thing I can think of that teams are looking at what Jordan Montgomery is asking, Blake Snell is asking, Marcus Stroman is asking, and saying, well, "I'm not paying that. Why would I pay that?" And the reason that you're not going to the trade market is it seems like they're waiting, at least general managers, front offices, are waiting to see when the prices go down. It's that game of chicken where, no, I'm not going to pay that. And the player says, well, I'm not going to sign with you and say, okay, well, we'll see who's left standing when the music stops. And before I go to the trade market, why would I give up my assets if this guy is going to drop his prices $10 million? So uh, I don't know if we see the trades other than if a team just says, bleep it, I'm not going to wait around for a Jordan Montgomery or a Blake Snell anymore. But I got to imagine it's the prices If the market value for Jordan Montgomery is sitting close to $20 million per year. Teams are probably like, I'm not paying that. I I think it's prices. And I think it's also because of the volatility of the guys that are available. Like think of Cody Bellinger. You really want to lock that guy up on an eight year, $250 million deal when he hit like 195 two years ago. And even though he had a great, great numbers this year, the advanced numbers will tell you uh, this This may not be sustainable. You look at Blake Snell. Sure, yeah, he won a Cy Young while walking five guys per nine innings. Uh, Jordan Montgomery, I think he's still viewed as a three across baseball, which is weird to say, but I think that's the way he is viewed. I, I listened to uh, the Roundtable podcast yesterday, uh, and they were saying that they were hearing that he is viewed as a three. And I think people are still looking at the market going, why would I give Frankie Montas $16 million? I don't want to do that. But that's where that's the cost of pitching now, which is funny because that's the problem baseball created itself. These teams created this own problem of lack of innings by the way they've developed guys to now a hundred and fifty inning pitcher is now worth like twelve to fifteen million dollars. And I think the, way, the cost did, of trading is more expensive too. It is because of the cost of pitching. 
because the cost of pitching is so high in the free agency market, the guys that are cost controlled that have already either signed contracts that are locked in years ago that have now become values by them just sitting there, or if the guys are cost controlled by being on the entry level deals, whatever it is, they're, they're cheaper than what you're going to have to go pay for a similar caliber of pitcher on the free agent market. Therefore, it's worth a lot in terms of your prospect currency. Somebody on the text line said, guys, hasn't it been this way for a few years? Players don't sign until sometime right before or even into spring training because teams get desperate at that point and have to overpay. That's the case for a couple of players every year. It is typically not the case for this many. What's unique about this offseason is that Montgomery, Snell, Bellinger, Chapman, Hayter, Kershaw, Stroman, J.D. Martinez, uh, Teoscar Hernandez, Soler, and Merrifield are all still available. That's weird. And the part that's weird is, so like the starting pitching and the possession players, typically you would think that you would see more movement. The one that you're not seeing any movement in, and this is the one that shocks me, is the bullpen arms. There's been nothing. There, there's been like five bullpen arms that have signed. And like it's it's a couple of guys that were at the top end of the market, like in the <laughs> mid to top tier. And then a few of the guys that are like at the very bottom tier of the market, and then everybody else remains available. And this is why, like, we're talking a lot about the starting rotation and whether or not the Cardinals are actually going to do what is necessary to fix it, because most of those players that could have fixed it are off the market at this point in time. We're not talking as much about the bullpen and my fear of that not being fixed, because everybody's still available. Yeah. Like, yeah. Whatever you thought they were going to do heading into free agency, you probably still feel that way because almost every player that could have fixed that hole is still out there ready to go for them. If you wanted them to go get Jordan Hicks, guess what? That guy's still out there for you. If you wanted them to go out there and get, what is it, Robert Stevenson? Still out there, ready to go, available. Everybody is still out there. So it's it's a weird offseason, man, and... I have said in the past, I'm not sure that it's totally necessary for them to create any kind of deadline uh, to be able to kind of kick kickstart things. I'm starting to wonder if that might be necessary. And I don't know how you do it, and I really don't think that the players would ever accept it, but we're getting po- close to a place where it might even be good for the players yeah. because there's going to come a point in time we'll see which direction that it ends up going, but... So the text line said you got to break if you're a team and give them the money that they're worth. Do you, though? Or are the teams going to stay strong and say, yeah, pff, we're fine. Nobody else is trying, so why don't we go ahead and wait here, and you're going to eventually sign a one-year contract with somebody, and you'll come crying back to us because you want to contest. It's such a bad look for baseball. Uh, like to, to wait so long for moves to take place, and then you're just basically playing stalemate. Like For fans, that like the general fan that wants to get excited for it, it's such a bad look to waste this much time because both sides don't want to agree upon what they feel like they're deserving. And I don't deserved. mind that baseball's offseason moves slower than others. I, I really don't. I think that it's good for the sport to have like the ebbs and the flows of the hot stove season, right? Instead of being like hockey where two days in, boom, it's done. over. <laughs> it's a it's a pop gun offseason, right? And in the NFL, it's kind of the same. Baseball is different, and it's always been different, and I have no problem with that. But the difference has typically been, hey, by winter meetings, you really start heating things up. And that's about a month and a half into the offseason where you now have all of this action. By January, we should be done talking about where the big guys are going to sign. Yeah, by the time you get to New Year's, typically you have a couple of free agents that remain and maybe a trade or two that's still out there. You don't have the entire market that's still waiting to move for the most part. And that's what's different this year. So I don't know how they fix it. I don't know if they can fix it. I don't know if maybe this is just a one-off in terms of a and weird offseason with a lot of, of different TV factors. Deals. Sure. 
But something is weird this offseason, and it is playing into why the Cardinals have not made the moves that we've all been waiting for. For Alex and T-Bone, I'm BK. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow at 11 a.m. Check out the podcast page, 101ESPN.com. The free 101 ESPN app is where you go to find it. You can always check us out on YouTube as well, youtube.com slash 101ESPN. The studio cams powered by the Air Alliance team. The Fast Lane's coming up next here on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.